Tonight we discuss some of this past year's highlights, starting with the run on Silicon Valley Bank and the near repeat of the 2008 financial crisis. We then cover the geopolitical implications of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine mixed in with the attacks in Israel, crisis at the border, and the changing world of technology as AI continues to touch more of our everyday lives. As a bonus, we are excited to welcome back longtime co-hosts Nick and Hank to help us round out the year and give us some perspective on what this year may yet bring. I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time Welcome back to the 21st century. This is 2024, but we're going to review what happened in 2023. It is the annual tradition of myth of the 20th century. And tonight we have a very special guest and a very special host returning for the first time this year and another co-host who has been uh, busy in the Eastern Front. Um, Nick and Hank are back. Can you guys believe it? Hopefully for long, but hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. And Hans is here as well, but Nick. Yeah, we're back, boys. I think everybody wants to hear what you've been up to. I can't really talk about that. Um, I don't really know. It's been a shitty year, or it's been a good year, I guess, depending on which uh, where you're standing. But, yeah, happy to be back. And life, it's a monster, and we've been doing this for a long time. So this is a, definitely a tradition. I don't know which number it is, but we keep getting older and uh, everything keeps getting worse. All right. Well, we're going to resume the format that we started last year to review topics as opposed to months. So if the audience will bear with me, there's some logic to this, but we're going to start off with just some economic stuff, which from my perspective is pretty easy to do. Uh, and then we'll get into the meat of things with the politics and all that stuff. Uh, but I think, and, and somewhat chronologically, it makes sense to bring this up. One of the biggest events that happened this year early on during March was this banking crisis. And we actually, Hans and I did a sort of a crash show on the topic, which I thought was received pretty well. But just to give you guys a recap of what went down, uh, there was essentially a run on the bank. And this is something that was sort of thought of as kind of a thing of the past with the Federal Reserve backstopping things and all the electronic uh, technology uh, making liquidity very available. But in a weird way, the opposite happened 
because what happened was, well, two, two major things happened. One was the interest rates from the Federal Reserve were raised from near zero to over 5%, which had never happened uh, in terms of just the percentage increase, uh, relatively speaking, from less than 1% to 5%. It was like a you know, 500% increase, depending on how you look at it. But it was a huge change. And what that does to anybody who's owning assets in long-term assets like treasuries or something is suddenly those assets go down in value when alternative investments like the current year uh, treasuries or T-bills or things go up uh, in interest rates, your current assets go down. So they, they had kind of a, a leverage problem and their, their relative equity was, was low compared to their liabilities, et cetera. So they had uh, some concerns that were amplified by technology because of the interconnectedness of how things uh, work today with Twitter and instant messaging and all that stuff. And so there was basically this weekend event where it kind of went down, you know, from a Friday to a Monday. Peter Thiel was trying to get some money out because he had some investments tied up in this Silicon Valley bank. And since he's a venture capitalist and a lot of other venture capitalists have money in that bank, it it sort of specializes in financing startups. That was sort of their niche. Uh, He was having difficulty making withdrawals. And he basically told all his friends, get your money out now. There's something wrong with this bank. And it became a self-fulfilling prophecy where once he said that, all the other people did it. And then that spiraled out of control where other people were making withdrawals and the thing went bust. And there were a couple of other banks, uh, which also went up in smoke over the course of a week or two. And the federal reserve eventually stepped in and the the treasury and all the sort of, uh, policy people in Washington basically took it pretty seriously. And I, uh, and Hans, uh, if I'm thinking back correctly, were sort of on the side that this was probably a necessary step in order to avert another financial crisis. And I think it actually did somewhat work. Yeah, financial sector is one of the purest examples of like why you actually need competent policymakers with actual crisis expertise, not just issuing diktats or theoretically wise policies but you actually need somebody to pick up the phone at 2 a.m and deal with a situation that's comparatively rare and i think kind of underappreciated that these circumstances benefit from that because it was pretty textbook problem solving uh partially a problem created Uh, by these same regulators. The banks did not necessarily voluntarily invest in uh, long dated, uh, long duration agency debt at like near zero uh, interest rates. Uh, It was heavily suggested to them by regulators that they are locked into making happy that they should buy this dog shit uh, debt debt issuance uh, and that should be a significant part of their reserves and then when the price inevitably cratered the same regulators thankfully were able to arrange basically buyouts of these people Uh, so no depositors ultimately 
lost money. But it really, I think, goes to show how much the entire banking sector is a franchise, uh, both you know, in a very literal sense of the Federal Reserve and also in a figurative sense of just the government's money power in general. They operate by the consent of the government on the government's terms. And hopefully, if you're going to allow them to operate, you have competent people managing that government to quote unquote private sector relationship. Nick, did you even hear about all this? Yeah, I heard about it. Um, I don't know. Is it like a, it sounds like uh, criminals doing criminal things is usually my take on this kind of thing. I don't know if it's as explosive and sensational as something like, uh, you know, some of these foreign bank uh, proxies like that had collapsed like the uh, BCCI or something like that. But, you know, I mean, you talk about Peter Thiel's, so I assume there's some kind of, you know, spook thing going on there. I mean, I'm sure plenty of institutional criminals have their fingers in it, and I guess it was salvaged uh, in a way that wasn't a great embarrassment to Zog. So I guess, what, is that a win for Zog? <laughs> yeah, you could look at it that way. Well, the, the the main thing from Main Street's perspective was that people were going to lose their deposits. And I think it was interesting to watch the sort of feeling on the on on the sort of mass level of what people wanted to happen vis-a-vis what happened during the 2008-2009 crisis. And this time around people were very much in favor of making sure that the the Main Street person got supported first as opposed to what was perceived at least during 2008 2009 whereas wall street was getting served first and i think the depositors in particular were guaranteed before anybody else and the investors in silicon valley bank for example were basically told you know you guys are screwed um so i think that was a little bit more of a populist uh orientation this time around and you know whether it was a win for zog or not i think that the main thing from I think the little person's perspective is that they did at least they didn't at least lose their deposit, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. So what you're saying is that they learned from 2008 that when you fuck everybody, when you fuck over ordinary people, you create you can occupy Wall Street <laughs> political instability. Yes. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you don't want to do that again. No. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> I figured you'd have a similar. Uh, take on things yeah i i agree with you um i i think there's there's all of that involved but long and short of it is um we're still here and i do think it was a big deal though i don't think it was a i i, I basically think it was a, it was a it was a fuck up i think they it was it was they, a massive deal i yeah. mean it it basically froze liquidity for a huge chunk of the the startup sector and not just the startup sector but actual large established companies couldn't even get into their accounts. Uh, it was, it was terrible. There was, there was at least a four or five day period there when it really, when it actually collapsed, <clears throat> that looked pretty dicey. And I, I distinctly remember around that time, one of the major ratings agencies came out and actually said something to the effect of the United States banking system is deteriorating or you know, like use that language. And that added more fuel to the fire. And I think that partially contributed to the death of First National Bank. 
uh, I'm sorry, our first Republic Bank in San Francisco, which also imploded um, because, yeah. you know, there was there was this perception and part of it really is just a perception game that, OK, the banking system is actually collapsing. You know, like we have a rating, we have a ratings agency coming out and saying that it's, you know, it's collapsing. Uh, OK, so I'm going to pull my money out of this this bank that's already having problems and I'm going to, you know, put it into J.B. Morgan and hope they don't collapse. That was basically everybody's thought process. A ton of those regional banks, I don't know if you guys remember, a huge amount of those like regional banks in the Midwest uh, in particular, their their shares dropped like 50, 60 percent on like the, the following Monday. I mean, they looked like they were going to collapse. Yeah, the whole and, sector. Uh, it was like the KRE yeah. index, uh, yeah, all these sort yeah, of mid-sized yeah. U.S. banks, Zion Bank, they were all, yep. all yeah. devastated. And I, I don't think like, they've gone out of business, but they haven't really fully recovered. No, they haven't. They haven't recovered. Um, they none of them went out of business. I mean, the thing is, really, only three major banks. Uh, actually, I think four, but the three major ones: first, Credit Suisse, first Republic. That well, that was a separate event, and I'm talking about the American focus, like you know, spring financial crisis. But you know, really, there was only the three major banks that that actually died on the vine. You know, the Signature, First Republic, and Silicon Valley Bank. Um, but there was a period there in the week or two after, especially the following week after Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, um, that it looked like a larger number of mid-sized banks were going to get killed. Um, and it ended up not happening. I think that, you know, the government, like Hank said, like actually showed a degree of competence that was surprising. Um, the FDIC is probably probably one of the smarter, more well-organized bureaucracies in Washington, if not one of the best. And they, you know, they didn't really mince words. They didn't, they didn't, you know, belabor. They, they got it done. They figured out how to sell off the assets, how to make sure deposit depositors were okay, got their money and they prevented, you know, kind of widespread panic very fast. So I mean, it was interesting. I think, you know, not like a few months ago, the Fed actually put out like a, a large scale report on what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. And the whole thing is basically a long screed blaming uh, Trump for causing the collapse of the bank. And that uh, it was Trump's fault for changing the threshold for what was deemed systemic, systematically important bank. Uh, from 50 million, 50 billion to 250 billion, which is and Silicon Valley Bank flew under the radar on that. Um, and so they were subjected to less stress testing and audits and, and less you know, capital reserve ratios than it was demanded of larger banks. And uh, basically the Fed <laughs> is trying to, you know, try to divert blame for, you know, creating the conditions for the crisis than actually just, you know, creating a condition that directly resulted in the death of the bank. And then basically tried to say that, oh yeah, the, the deregulation that occurred five years prior is really the problem. Well, we, we, uh, I think we talked yeah. about that a little bit in March and yeah. I don't remember specifically who was on that bill, but don't I they always say that. Yeah. yeah, they're going to deflect, but I think there was a particular, pro particularly prominent Democratic senator, probably like Barney Frank or something like that, 
who was pushing that at the same time. So it wasn't it wasn't Trump per se. It was it was sort of a, an agreement. Well, bipartisan. so yeah, so the yeah it was bipartisan because they were rolling back pieces of Dodd Frank, and they because there were huge problems with Dodd Frank. The, the biggest problem is that it had effectively resulted in the. Were people talking about Dodd Frank back in two thousand eight too? Yeah, well, Dodd Frank was a thing, you know, came about after the 08 crisis, and so ten years later, literally in the ten year anniversary of the financial crisis, it wasn't just Trump. I mean, it was like a bipartisan effort in the United States Senate uh, came together, and they all said, like, okay, we have a problem here. The banking system is now very challenging for mid-sized banks. It's almost impossible to be a mid-sized bank. And we're losing a lot of these smaller regional banks in the Midwest and the South. They're just, they're, they're falling apart. They're not able to withstand the pressure. And even worse, we're not seeing any new banks. Nobody's really creating new banks outside of crypto. This is another big problem. So they thought, all right, the easiest thing we can do is just relieve some of the burden. If you're a bank with only fifty billion dollars, you know, in in the in the world of 2018, you, that's no longer systematically important. I mean, relative to something like J.P. Morgan, that's just a small fish. You probably don't need to be regulated at the same level. So that actually made a good deal of sense. Also, the whole thing is sort of it, it's insane in hindsight, like Silicon Valley Bank was so poorly run towards the end. No, like the risk management position was empty. If I remember correctly, they didn't actually have a head of risk management. It didn't seem like the CEO was all that active. It was seemed like a, just a poorly run company. Yeah, and they had very cozy ties with the San Francisco Federal Reserve as well. Yeah. So, yeah. again, to blame Trump, who frankly probably yeah. didn't even understand the nuances of this bill. I mean, I personally, I just don't feel like this is something he would really be uh, concerned or interested in. Uh, it, it seems ridiculous. And so the people who actually do this for a living full time have much more responsibility and you know that's the federal reserve the people obviously at silicon valley bank right uh, yeah. and and they want to divert the uh, responsibility to, to keep their job because that's all they do uh, ironically but in any case um it it sort of got resolved and it, 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 longer term you you could still still question if this was an improvement of things because i remember at the time and looking back, I think those fears were basically borne out that this was just going to lead to further consolidation and, and basically a dumping of power into Jamie Dimon's lap and, and JP Morgan. And that's kind of what happened. It, it was the sort of uh, too big to fail, uh, systemically important institutions um, like JP Morgan, Bank of America in the United States, uh, Wells Fargo, they, the latter two didn't really capitalize too much in terms of acquiring other businesses, but JP Morgan bought First Republic, uh, and they reported record earnings very quickly after this because basically people diverted all their deposits to them. And JP Morgan pays you terribly for keeping your money with them. And they do that because they know that there is a insurance premium uh, implicit uh, built into their their 
their savings return rates. It, it's like we're, we're going to pay you with the solidity of our fortress balance sheet, so to speak. But I think people are getting a little bit tired of that and they're looking elsewhere. But at least initially after this crisis, uh, they, they reported a lot of earnings because they basically they did the traditional thing, which is what banks do. They, they borrow short, lend long, and if their costs of capital are very low, like 1% or something, and then they lend it out at 7%, you know, it's a pretty good business. In any case, um, that seems to be what's happening um, you know, longer term. Like, what, th- this, is, this is just going to lead to bigger and bigger banks. And ironically, the whole criticism of Trump that he wanted to actually go against that trend uh, yet again solidifies this uh, pattern of having the quote-unquote Democratic Party uh, basically becoming the party of big business more and more, uh, ironically. Anyway, um, let's go to the next topic because we're, we're going to have uh, lots to say tonight. So uh, there were a few things looking back, I think, from 2022, uh, but there were also kind of some echoes as well with newer people. But I think the most interesting thing was the prosecution of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried uh, with the, um, what was his stupid company called? I don't even remember. But he... Um, FTX. FTX, yeah, the crypto yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah, he was found guilty. And I don't <laughs> know if they sentenced him yet, but it was... Well, six of his charges just got dropped. Some of them were dropped. Others were the, the pretty more, severe. I don't remember. The serious ones, like the campaign finance violations, were dropped. Yeah, nobody really has an interest in looking too deeply into that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He, he, he bribed enough people that they don't want to reveal that directly. It's sort of like the Epstein thing. It's like, well, and that was his biggest plan. Like, you know, you don't speed run these things. The whole idea was we have this sector that theoretically is shitting money, but it's basically illegal. So we're going to build the equivalent of a banking sector from scratch, make money in the traditional banking sector ways of just transaction fees, collecting, like borrowing short, lending long, doing relatively small amounts of arbitrage. And we'll be able to get the same level of political economic influence as the banking sector uh, by making all of our competitors I guess, even more illegal than they currently are. Uh, Except for that's like a multi-decade process. If you're going to do real regulatory capture, you don't just go and start writing checks to politicians. That's the final step. The first step is you're having like all these shitty like pizza luncheons for low-level staffers where you're gently explaining to them all the nuances of this exciting sector. You're making sure that like some number of these people have jobs. You're having them go and say, Hey, you know, these guys make a great point. Like this could be contributing to our national security. This could help us give money to black people. This is a great way to accomplish all of our policy goals. And after this cycle repeats for like a decade, then you like start writing giant checks to congressmen you're still writing checks in the beginning but there's a known process here that's how like all the green energy shit got started you don't just start writing checks to like promote whatever 
you start having uh, you know AI safety uh, policy positions at think tanks and whatnot. So yeah, he did it in a very ham handed way uh, that indicated he was a rube, and it came back to bite him. Similar to FTX, I don't know how far this has gone, but back in March they were starting to investigate uh, the Binance Group. Uh, which is a Chinese exchange that is considered the, well, now the the sort of only major uh, crypto exchange left, uh, pure, pure exchange, that is, as opposed to something like Coinbase, which is kind of like a custodial bank or brokerage company. All, all this stuff is very odd and, and how it's structured. But in any case, there was... Um, there were there were some people looking into that company as well, um, probably including the Chinese. Didn't really follow up on the details of that. I just threw it in here as the sort of uh, groupings of financial crime. Uh, and then lastly, there's um, there's sort of like a, a speculation that there is a correlation between the Forbes 30 under 30 or whatever list of uh, very successful. Uh, 30 something or under 30s and 20 somethings that are promising candidates for the next billionaires or already billionaires. Uh, but the, the more you're on the, the cover uh, of magazines like that, the higher chance you'll, you'll be indicted several years down the road. Maybe when you, by, by the time you turn up by 30. So specifically, uh, uh, Sam Bankman Fried was on there. Was Theranos that a woman, CEO. Uh, your, your, your girlfriend, Adam, Yes. You keep saying yeah, she's my girlfriend. girlfriend. There, yeah. We all, we, we all, I, I guess, know who that is, though. That was Elizabeth Holmes from <laughs> Theranos fame. Uh, Sam yes, Bankman-Fried's yes, yes. girlfriend, uh, weird uh, cosplayer, uh, and sometime uh, League of Legends player, uh, also on that list. And then this other girl, which I had never heard of, but only after the sort of scandals came out. This this girl named Javits or something like that. She uh, Charlie Javis. She hoodwinked J.P. Morgan into buying her financial that startup, and <laughs> she got uh, she got charged. So there there you go. Uh, Forbes thirty under thirty list. Yeah, the, uh, the last that I heard, it cost about eighteen or nineteen thousand dollars to get on that list. It is not a exclusive club. <laughs> whom do you pay uh steve forbes or uh you you have your pr guy yeah. handle it i don't that's know if that's insane. like your uh your rack rates or like their wholesale rates is that a down payment on your bonds yeah some, i don't some, i don't know how like it's structured that. but uh the uh the story i heard was that yeah some money changes hands it's not like they rack their brains for these people uh, actually, I looked at a copy of Forbes recently, and I flipped through it because I think they did the list again recently. And if you read the fine print, uh, there's a selection committee for all this stuff. And I can't imagine it involves, frankly, anybody with any real-world business experience uh, over the age of, of 30 because who, who would want to work at Forbes, honestly, these days as a journalist? They probably don't even work in the office. They probably work on their computer uh, and they're Googling for people who have press releases out and are getting rounds of investment. They no. probably go on AngelList no. or places like, like the that. The PR guy reaches out to you and is like, hey, I, I got a guy for you. Like, you don't have to do jack shit. Like, you pull one out of the pile. 
The cotton I'm sure. is written for you. It's the easiest job you could possibly have. It's yeah, it's one step right. up from like national security reporting where you just like print the press release. Yeah. Yeah, I think that Pink's right. They just get a collection of emails from like various people's PR guys and then they slap it into chat GPT and they're like, okay, compile an article for me based on these statements. Boom. Oh, there's just barely even any articles. The, these are these are like blurbs underneath uh, the photographs. Even, even better, even better. Okay, chat GPT, compile a blurb. You know, per per statement with like, you know, and these are all public figures. So chat GPT can actually ascertain information on them for you. Right. I'm sure that's it. Probably is. I wouldn't I wouldn't be shocked if if a large number of articles now or like especially those throwaway articles or it's just a list or it's it's like very kind of like lowbrow or just at this point, like, you know. ChatGPT. I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, definitely, definitely, an increase in that for sure. Uh, in addition to the uh, the term papers that all the students are are doing, I think everybody else is figuring out the same thing that you can actually get this chatbot technology to actually do a lot of uh, mundane, quote unquote, office work for you. Uh, next topic real quick. The government has been having problems throughout 2023 actually auctioning off some of its uh, debt. Uh, partly the reason the interest rates have been so high is there's been less demand for the bonds. And so when that happens, they they have kind of like a reverse auction where interest rates effectively go up uh, until they get a bid. And so this happened, uh, at least when I snagged the, uh, the, uh, the news articles, uh, this happened in January, and then it happened again in November. Now, these things fluctuate all over the place, but uh, interest rates are still pretty high. And I think we were speculating back in March if the Federal Reserve was going to be able to maintain this higher for longer policy, uh, which on the surface of it was intended to fight inflation. And after the banking crisis, uh, the Fed actually did raise rates one or two more times, which came as a bit of a a jolt to the financial sector, which, you know, from Main Street's perspective, you could argue who cares. Uh, but also from Main Street's perspective, uh, that sort of flows into borrowing rates on mortgages. And so people were actually somewhat critical of the Fed, and they've actually started to indicate that this year they're going to start lowering rates, uh, actually in, in a very specific pattern, uh, three times in a row. By what degree, it hasn't been revealed, but we will see. But if that happens, the uh, Treasury Secretary will have a little bit easier time, I suppose, of funding the ever-burgeoning government debt. Uh, it's, again, at an all-time high. And the, uh, the last three administrations have been just notorious for pushing out trillions and trillions in deficits uh, during their administrations. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the... Biden administration is just as bad as Trump and 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 Obama, who um, have all had their share of crises, COVID, the financial crisis, et cetera. So it it doesn't seem to be stopping, but the demand for perpetuating the cycle seems to be going down somewhat, and that is an interesting development. And some people are speculating that this may be the beginning of the end of the dollar supremacy and things like that with other countries in the BRICS group, which is sort of an artificial construct of 
Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs anyway, but uh, it's just essentially the other alternative power blocks in the world that would rather not have the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency as much. So I think those are tied together, government debt. Also tied to government debt is the housing market because I think primarily of the interest rates going up so much uh, and then somewhat stabilizing last year, uh, the number of new home sales has dropped off quite a bit, actually more than ever, uh, even more than 2007. And that is quite shocking. But I think, again, if you look at the rapidity of the interest rate increase, it makes a lot of sense. So yeah, Wall Street, Silver, Twitter account reports U.S. existing home sales also decrease, which is different than new home sales. Um, but the I should actually distinguish between the two because there was an interesting bifurcation in this housing market. There was, and surprised me, surprised a lot of people, but those who got this right probably made a lot of money. The people that thought interest rates would stop the entire housing market were incorrect. What happened was existing home sales dropped. And according to this, they've dropped by record amount. Uh, primarily because what, what happens typically is when you sell your house, you try to buy another one, whether for 1031 tax exchange reasons, or just obviously you need somewhere to live. That's typically what happens. And so if people were to sell their house, they would probably need to finance the new house. And because rates have gone up so much and the people that are holding the house, the existing home on average had a much lower rate than the current market was offering. The existing home sales didn't happen. People didn't want to sell their home because they didn't want to get a higher mortgage. And then new home construction actually did okay because people with the desire for a brand new construction probably have enough money to, to do that sort of thing. And so they're not interest rate as interest rate sensitive. So that was an interesting development as well. Um, but I think there has again been some pressure on the Fed to lower rates. And I think, and we've already seen it, the the rates are, I think, in a, the, the, the further end of the, the curve, as they say, is starting to come down. And they've already forecasted that the, the rates or they've they've broadcast, not forecasted, that they will rate lower rates this coming year. So uh, we will see. Um, any any comments on the housing market, guys? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been kind of a terrible year for the housing market. You already have sort of a housing market collapse in some regions of the country. Prices just falling by double digits and doesn't seem to be a lot of sign of imminent recovery. Um, and even in some of you know, areas where housing markets traditionally aren't uh, as prone to major drops like California and parts of the Midwest where it's normally pretty stable. It's either you know a stable large-scale growth or stable small-scale growth, but it's stable. Um, you know, it's been very challenging, I think, for people to find housing. Uh, it, it doesn't help that the United States is at this point you know deeply committed to uh, large-scale immigration. And all this does is put major pressure on the housing market. And it puts a lot of pressure on the housing market in ways you wouldn't often think. Um, just because, you know, like you have a bunch of, you know, for example, low-scale, low-wage, kind of like migrant order hopper types coming over. I mean, there is plenty of housing development 
going on for those people. Um, all that does is divert resources and jack up prices for the same raw materials and labor that go into building, you know, nicer condos, nicer apartment buildings, houses, suburban plan districts, whatever. Um, you know, one thing about the United States is that basically the same material goes into both rich and poor housing for the most part. I mean, we have some exceptions, but a lot of the houses are built with the exact same raw materials. So this, all this does is make it exceedingly challenging uh, to find like competitive, well-priced, affordable housing markets to try and live in in the United States. Uh, it doesn't show any signs of really stopping. It'll probably be this way for at least a few years. Um, the Fed seems to be you know, very committed to the, the slow burn. We'll never really allow another 08 moment, but we'll allow a sort of controlled, you know, slow collapse in the housing prices over the course of several years in major markets. Um, and then we'll hopefully, or I think they'll just hope that the prices will eventually rebound and that uh, this is just, you know, this is the normal in that we'll have these periods of massive, sharp, almost logarithmic growth in the price of the housing market. And then we'll have small multi-year periods where there's a slow decline in prices and then it'll shoot back up again for one reason or another. I, I think that that's the plan. And that's kind of what's been borne out this year, starting with you know uh, some of the problems that started to emerge in the housing market in 2019. Last last economic topic I had was just the uh, the inflation trend, which brought us all back to the 1970s. The inflation problem is is a thing that affects everyone, no matter how wealthy or uh, poor you are. We all have to eat and. Obviously, some of us can afford increases better than others, but no matter what, you're going to see it in your in your life. And I think that was something that people noticed, and especially prices at the pump, prices at the grocery store, uh, shortages of eggs, things like that were really jarring, I think, to the American public who was not used to that sort of thing and obviously brought allusions to or comparisons to the preconditions for the collapse of countries like the Soviet Union, where they were also having uh, shortages in their grocery stores and, and problems like that. But things have been cooling a little bit. Uh, to call it in deflation, I think is incorrect. To call it disinflation, I think technically might be more accurate in the sense that inflation, the, the rate of increase of uh, prices has, has slowed but it is still greater than zero. And so that's usually called something like disinflation. But whereas 2022 saw average inflation rates somewhere around 7%, which is even debatable depending on how you do that calculation. The Bureau of Labor Statistics bizarrely has the responsibility of calculating that for the entire country. Uh, but nonetheless, they, they use this commonly reported CPI index or CPI is consumer price index, I should say. Uh, and they use that as kind of a barometer for how healthy the inflation front is. 7% is, is high. We haven't seen that level since probably the 80s uh, and obviously the 70s where it was even worse. And 
things have, according to them at least, dropped down to around in the mid threes, which you could argue is a success for the Fed. Uh, obviously, it is an improvement because inflation effectively means that for the same amount of goods, you are paying more for them and there is no increase in quality. And so that is basically an effective decrease in everyone's wealth. So inflation is not a good thing. And it has come down. It is still not at target, though, which is these um, proverbial 2%. Don't know why they pick two as opposed to zero. Uh, but uh, I suppose it's it's sort of like to keep the animal spirits, as they say, alive in the sense that the Great Depression saw deflation where people were actually conserving their money and not spending and, and, and causing sort of the reverse effect, wealth effect where people were uh, losing more money and then spending less, causing people to lose more money and then further decline the economy. So I think that's probably why they try to keep it at a small positive number. But inflation has come down. So what do you guys think about that? Do you think that's the, the beast of inflation has been slayed or do you think it's a, a temporary uh, tactical victory? Yeah, we're getting inflation after the election, probably. I, my model of everything that the Federal Reserve and the BLS and most of the other apparatuses are doing is, you know, they managed to cram down the COVID inflation wave. And it's going to be party time between now and uh, next winter uh, in order to make sure that the, uh, the horrible orange man does not descend upon Washington again. Uh, but you know, that has consequences. The labor market is still extremely stretched out in all sorts of weird ways uh, at the high end and the low end and the middle. I mean, just all over the place. It's very dislocated. The population influx that we're seeing and the impact that that's having on major metropolitan areas is having its own weird effects on logistics and property prices and everything else. There's no way that you can keep a lid on that pot indefinitely without real economic growth, which we're not getting. So you juice all these nominal statistics and you try to financialize the whole system and tweak it on that basis in order to keep the plate spinning. Uh, they'll probably be able to do it for a few months. Uh, but after that, it's game on. I'm, I'm long I bonds. Yeah, I think I think that's probably closer to the truth than not. Uh, I, I, I generally think that inflation is not going to go back to 2% in the long term, mainly because probably the only real reason it got that low was because of the massive deflation from, from China. And because Chinese manufacturing costs have been going up, their population has been decreasing, not increasing, which is only going to be inflationary for costs. And you add on that a a layer of trade war and further geopolitical tension. And we're not going to see any more efficiencies out of globalization from them. You know, maybe you'll get it from Mexico, the Peter Zihan policy kind of thing. But I think we've already done that with, with NAFTA. I don't really see how that expands. Uh, there may be more reshoring, which I think would be a good thing generally, but that doesn't mean that prices are going to go down. It's just going to 
put further pressure on the labor market, which, you know, in the long run, it will, will give the working class more of a share of the economic pie. Will the GDP growth rates go up as much as they have been? Probably not, but, you know, we'll have a little bit more of a balanced society as a trade-off, and I think it's probably going to be a good thing for most people. Uh, but, yes, inflation will probably look a lot more like what we had the 70s and 80s when we were more industrialized, when the the peak of the manufacturing I, employment... I have a question. Uh, Hank, uh, for, for Hank, I have a question for Hank. H- Hank, why uh, can you explain what you think the relationship between uh, price inflation and the return of the orange order is? Because you said that, I just want to understand what you mean. So there was a sort of organic inflation happening from the combination of the logistical supply crunch leading out of COVID and then the government giving out large bundles of cash to keep everybody from rioting uh, when they were locked in because of the COVID. That inflation was tamped down uh, fairly successfully by the Federal Reserve by raising rates, which they only recently have stopped doing. Uh, Incidentally, if you want to look at uh, empirical interest rate policy, you're better off looking at the whole yield curve than the Federal Reserve rate, because there's a lot of weird stuff happening with the shape of that curve. But I digress. Anyway, inflation is currently... Uh, low because of those very high interest rates, but that's having increasing negative economic implications, uh, particularly on housing markets, the abilities of companies to invest, like all the standard stuff that high interest rates cause. So those rates will be cut. I don't believe that there is enough uh, underlying real economic mojo to allow the combination of very low interest rates uh, and the fiscal impacts and everything else to not reify in inflation uh, at some point in the future. So that's the that's the relationship. Like the all the stuff that's being done in order to prevent the orange man from descending upon Washington, D.C., like a horde of locusts. Uh, will uh, cause inflation either you know before or after the election, probably after that. So you mean to say that the money power generally wants to present to the American cattle the illusion of immediate material comfort so that they don't uh, yeah, I mean, some kind of orange future or there's yeah. a uh, Yes. I mean, there's a really odd phenomenon that's going on now that's actually pretty funny. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics issues these employment numbers and 11 out of the 12 uh, preceding months, they've been like, employment is great. Uh, Employment is up by such and such amount. And then the next month, they revise it downwards by a huge amount. So they've been doing this consistently and people are like oh they're doing this to juice the markets and that's not true like the the people who do macro analysis and have like valuation targets for things are not idiots they can read the chart they can read their revisions to the chart and they can see like 
yes, that the number that you're telling me is this, but my actual belief in the number as of next month is this different number because you change the number each month. They understand this. So the reason that this juices the market is because it's a symbol, it's a costly symbol that, or signal rather, that the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve intend to keep the plates spinning and the balls in the air until the election. So it's like the the meme of economic collapse is bullish for the S&P because because it means the Federal Reserve is going to have to like dump money into the market. It's it's exactly that. So the more fake and gay that the economic statistics become, the more of a signal that financial markets will be juiced come hell or high water going into the election, which is why like the catastrophe that's implied by the numbers is bullish for the market. It's it's pretty cool. Well, let, let, that's let me... actually very interesting to me. So what you mean to say is that, we, well, so what you're saying is that the reason that they put out numbers that deviate so far from reality is to signal to basically the ultra-rich that the moves that they will be making in the future? I believe that that is a effective component of it. I'm sure that the headline number provides literal headlines and some amount of PR support. Uh, but yeah, I, I believe at this point that's probably a, whether or not like that's an intentional thought process on their part, that's what it indicates about their future policies. Not to get ahead of ourselves, because uh, I know Adam has these topics, but I have to ask you, Hank, do you think that they do the same thing when it comes to warfare? I mean, isn't that the constant throughout all of human history? It's like our... No, our no, no not human history. I mean, American history. I mean, do, no, no, no. I mean, specifically, do they, do they make ridiculous claims in the American... Because I have this question I've always wondered uh, is something that we've talked about a lot over the years about the nature of because you see often uh, an assumption that propaganda is for the masses. And I've never really believed this. I've always thought that the purpose of propaganda had something to do with coordinating some kind of elite consensus. Absolutely. And so when they say ridiculous things, because I yeah, right. So I don't yeah. I don't believe that. It, yeah, you, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I mean, this is the the whole like NRX, like point deer make horse, like most regime messaging and signaling is internally oriented. Like, this is the reason why you see weird stuff in the New York Times and the Washington Post. It's not because they're desperate to send some covert signal to some dude reading it in Peoria, it's an inter office memo, effectively. So you know, when uh, when Biden like privately expresses frustrations that the attorney general isn't doing more to prosecute the orange man, and this appears then in the New York Times, it's like, well, it's not a very private fucking frustration, is it? Like, that's, there's exactly one person that that's directed at, 
uh, and I'm sure he read his newspaper that morning. So good job. You, you did your job, journalists. Uh, so, I mean, that's the explicit point of government statistics is to allow government policymaking to happen with some shared basis of reality. It doesn't mean that that shared basis of reality needs to be accurate, just that it needs to be coordinated. Why don't we shift to geopolitics for a bit? And this was a busy year for that. I think uh, we, we would all agree with that. And we've also done, a, I think, some, some good shows, which I'll link to, regarding the, the superpowers and sort of the conflicts and the proxy conflicts that have been going on. And obviously, there have been two major ones that have caught the headlines and some other events that I think we should get to. But let's start with what has been going on with the ongoing quagmire in the East, in Ukraine, where much of the media and much of the the world was focused on for 2022. 2023 seemed to demonstrate for Ukrainians in particular that the West is not necessarily a consistent ally and the Russians have been pretty steady in their uh, resolve in, in fighting this campaign. And I would sum up in that you can look in the statistics, whether in terms of the amount of artillery, in terms of the, the manpower, Ukraine is, is not going to make it unless they could get continued aid from the West. And the Europeans in particular, uh, as well as the Americans, have been showing a lot of let's just say fatigue when it comes to continuing the funding. And I think the Russian playbook right now is basically just wait them out because they are at a stalemate, so to speak. And the Russians are taking enormous losses, you know, half a million or more in terms of lives lost. Uh, and they have a declining population, but the Ukrainians are doing probably even worse demographically. And they have probably a technological advantage, but in terms of an industrial uh, leverage over Russia. They just don't have it. They don't have the production of uh, of that basic military muscle that you need in a trench environment, uh, in particular in things, things like artillery, which uh, Russia has a much bigger industrial base for. I think they're, they're lobbing 10 times as much artillery at the Ukrainians as vice versa. And actually some of that is interesting because the North Koreans are, are giving a healthy dose of that supply to the Russians. Uh, but the, the Zelensky moment seems to be over. And I think without that sort of media darling status, he's going to have a hard time continuing the financial aid. That's how I see it. Uh, and there may be a settlement coming. I don't know, uh, if not a complete capitulation, but what do you guys think? Uh, if I may. So, Obviously, you could spend an entire couple hours talking about uh, the war there for 2022. Is that the right? No, no, sorry. 2023. That was the year that we just had. Well, anyways, uh, the question I would ask uh, you guys, I'm curious what your thoughts on, is whether or not this was the outcome that Zog wanted. Whether a meat grinder for... The people of Ukraine and a way to tie up uh, Russian resources was the goal, or if this is something that has proceeded in a way 
that they did not anticipate and has created a problem for them. So that's my question. Well, I can go first. Um, I think that we speculated that a forever war was definitely a, a possible foreign policy objective. But it was probably not the intended goal initially. First of all, I don't really know what exactly the intended goal ever was, if there was one. The impression that I get more and more is that there was never a unified idea about what to do with Ukraine and how to use it. <clears throat> there seemed to be sort of the Victoria Newland approach that didn't really even have that much coherence and it seemed to shift quite often. You know, was Ukraine meant to be this sort of Vietnam trap or was Ukraine meant to be an EU member uh, with, you know, full American defense apparatus very rapidly and basically just used as a propaganda springboard to antagonize uh, the Russian government? I don't really know if, if anybody had a clear idea for turning Ukraine into a massive, uh, you know, multi, you know, multi hundred mile death trap <laughs> for the Ukrainians and for the Russians. That's probably just, a you know, a matter of kind of adaptation and trying to figure out how best to salvage the operation. Um, it certainly probably has not really worked for the Russians. I would say for them, their goals were very, very clear and didn't really come to fruition. And that's not to say that they won't at some point, but, you know, really, the, if the Russians didn't win in the first, like, three days, they were never really going to win very easily. I think there was a lot built into this idea of it was like the the W effect with shock and awe. I think they really thought, you know, this is going to be a shock and awe campaign, and they're going to be gone. You know, they're all going to lay down their weapons and and we're going to march into Kiev with riot cops and beat some people up, and you know, it's like going to be a cakewalk. And it didn't really work out that way. Well, but well, but it didn't. But it didn't really work on out. That, um, but it, let me just if, if you let me just if you remember here. though. Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, I don't really think it worked out for, for Zog either in that they wanted Ukraine probably to go on the offensive at some point. I think that, you know, the, the intention was always to turn, maybe not always, but the intention after the Russians didn't immediately secure victory was to turn Ukraine into some kind of uh, vanguard that would be used to actually attack Russia. I don't think that that was the goal way back in 2014 with this started, but it's morphed into that, into basically using Ukraine as a way of attacking Russian soil indirectly, launching strikes into Russian territory. I mean, the Ukrainians are using British weapons right now to assassinate Russian admirals and to, and to kill Russian civilians in Belgorod. Uh, you know, it's, it's not even, it, it, this is the kind of operation that 
was always deemed extremely risky, you know, in the Cold War and in the aftermath of the Cold War, something really not to do. And I don't know if this was always the intention, because for a very long time, it was, you know, like sort of sacrosanct in foreign policy circles that you could intimidate the Russians, you could antagonize them. But you really couldn't like try and spill their blood on their own soil. You know, that was not a not a good idea. This could get out of hand. And they're a little hard to predict, so we should just avoid doing that. They seem to have thrown out that playbook some at some point after the war started. So I don't, you know, I don't know what Zog's intentions were before the war. Their intentions now seem to be, you know, a, a forever war, a meat grinder, and they've kind of given up on Ukraine as this potential bastion for, um, you know, the gay disco mostly because Ukrainians are just way too corrupt and and sort of impl impl implacable and, and just extremely challenging to work with. Um, and just a lot of them aren't really that bright. So I don't know if their intention was to turn Ukraine into a meat grinder. Now it seems like that's the only idea they have left is, yeah, I'll just turn it into a big shit show and, and hope for the best. Yeah, the problem is that they're extremely close to a Germany 1918 sort of situation uh, on many levels, actually. Like, they're pretty close to the point where they're going to have to wind down the whole thing. The yeah. amount of attrition that can support a quote-unquote forever war, I mean... Their plan was to go for like a forever guerrilla struggle uh, if Ukraine did fold immediately. And that's not going to happen. They, you know, they put up a conventional military fight and they did, you know, acceptably, I guess, in terms of uh, quality. No, nobody has covered themselves with uh, you know, tactical, strategic, or operational brilliance as part of this entire conflict. Uh, Certainly, I think that it's probably recognized as a strategic blunder, probably by both sides at this point. But the Ukrainian situation now is such that the United States probably wishes to put a bow on it in some sort of a face-saving mechanism. This is always what they do when uh, things are going very badly and say, you know, we're not... We're not pulling out. We're not abandoning our partners, but we're scaling back aid and we're suggesting negotiations, et cetera, et cetera. And then three years later, it's the last helicopter out of Saigon. They'll probably be able to come to an accommodation that avoids something really ugly, like a complete collapse or a pro-war, anti-war coup. And they'll be able to turn everything uh everything west of the Dnieper into like NATO super happy fun spook zone. Uh, they will never be able to actually conquer that piece of territory uh, unless there is just a full scale like 1918 style collapse of Ukrainian society. They probably can't justify on the Russian side dragging it out in order to achieve that outcome. Like Russian demography is not super favorable either at this point. So there's every incentive on both sides to put a lid on it, 
unfortunately, that doesn't really achieve like Russian strategic uh, uh, objectives or American strategic objectives. You can't like pull Ukraine into NATO while you have this festering conflict because you, the whole point of putting a lid on it is to resolve the giant conventional war that has substantial risks associated with it. And Russia is going to end up with a NATO battalion right smack dab on its borders immediately. So if anything, like it probably increases long term, long tail risk. Uh, but the short term situation is going to get papered over probably in 2024. Well, well Russia's Russia is forced to remain mobilized. And isn't that a strategic objective of Zog? I mean, mobilized is, do you mean post-peace or? Well, I mean, they've, they've called up how many hundred thousand reservists? Oh, yeah. and I mean, the, the they've explicit, put their entire, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the explicit point of the U.S., and I, I say explicit because literally the stated rationale is we bought these weapons to deal with our, you know, however they euphemize Russia. We bought these weapons to kill Russians with. We are sending them to Ukraine to kill Russians. Mission accomplished. Like, that is what these weapons were for. We're using them for that purpose. And instead of German or French or American soldiers dying, it's these other chucklefucks. Like, that was the explicit rationale for why it is in anyone's interests. So mission accomplished, I guess, on that basis, it's pretty, like nobody's ever explained to me why I should be happy with dead Russians uh, or dead Ukrainians or dead anyone. Nobody has explained the value of this to anyone. Uh, we, we were never asked and never consulted about these matters. Uh, well, have you bothered to ask a Jew? <laughs> I think the the value proposition was that uh, we're we're blunting this the spear of the Russian military so that we don't have to fight them later on. This is, I mean, this is what like you know, sitting U.S. senators are going around saying on national television. We're doing this so we don't have to fight them later, and you know, it's it's sort of a, a strange pantomime of like W era. Uh, war on terror stuff. We're fighting them over there, so we don't have to fight them here. It's, it's just bizarre. Like, it, it doesn't really hold up. It doesn't make too much sense. It's not really even achieving its stated goals, other than yes, like you know, there are a bunch of dead Russians now. Uh, but have we blunted the spear? Have we, you know, really diminished their their forces to such an extent that they're not a problem? I mean, it, it seems like we've militarized. Russian society. I mean, you know, like Russia is now basically going into a wartime economy. It's reorienting huge swaths of its society and preparing them for poverty. I and mean, it's becoming very obvious that Russia is going to become poorer for the first time since the fall of the Soviet Union, that they're going to have a lower standard of living. And the government there seems very content with just telling the population. This is how it'll be for some indefinite period of time. You will be poor, you know, resources are going to be scarce, and the economy is moving towards wartime production. 
was that you know did we end up blunting the spear by by doing that or did we just create you know the sort of lumbering monster that is now going to be right at the border well and, and i have some thoughts there's a lot of other questions here because so so with the collapse of uh the wagner group because my question was what is the relationship between this conflict and tying up russian resources in ukraine uh how does that relate to the zog imperial ambitions in africa as well as the client the i mean zog hq in the middle east and its ability russia's ability to provide military assets to syria uh, and what Wagner Group was previously doing in Africa, uh, that was a whole saga that I guess we could touch on briefly. I'm actually very curious to hear Hank's take on what happened there with uh, the assassination of uh, the Wagner Group head and what that all means with respect to what Russia was doing elsewhere in the American imperial sphere yeah, I think that's a sideshow. I mean, the America does not give a shit about Africa, except for to the extent that we love the African peoples of the world so much that we just need more of them ingested into the uh, the actual American continent. But uh, the the Wagner operations in Africa, like, I think the only reason why the United States had an interest in those was because it was Russia, and you need an excuse to exist, and you have some vague memory of, like, you know, SAS dudes and uh, various, uh, you know, Green Berets and whatever getting into gunfights in Angola that nobody is supposed to know about and you know that that's all cool stuff and theoretically that's the reason why you exist so yeah let's pretend like we still have an interest in doing that kind of stuff uh, but the whole you know seizing control of the the African resource base thing uh, I don't really think that's a thing frankly you know the 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 French have a fairly a uh, reasonable model for doing that, which is you just buy the stuff and you have significant influence with uh, the banking sector and the logistical networks in whatever countries you're operating in, and you essentially take a cut. Uh, and that works fairly well for them. Uh, certainly nobody really has an interest in pair-dropping in a bunch of commandos to run like cobalt mines like that's what you have africans for so uh i don't really see the africa situation as significant with respect to what happened in uh, in wagner i think the guy frankly just kind of went crazy i just wanted to give my thoughts on nick's question as to what the intent of this whole conflict was uh, frankly, I think people really didn't know what to expect, but I think the takeaway for me is that the deep state is benefiting from this. Are the people of Ukraine, of Russia, of America, of the world benefiting? No. Uh, but I think if you're oriented towards your power being 
benefiting from conflict, I think you're going to want conflict. And I think this is much akin to the war on terror, uh, Cold War 2.0, whatever you want to call it. I think more geopolitical tension is good for both sides, frankly, who are you know in positions of power because they benefit from having their citizenry having an enemy and therefore being fearful and therefore deferring their obedience to those in power because they have the quote unquote ability to protect you kind of thing. It's the 1984 playbook. So I think that's probably the likely outcome for the power brokers on both sides to sort of recognize that, well, let's just settle this thing and then kind of make it another uh, Berlin uh, during the cold war, another North Korea, South Korea kind of divide where both sides sort of use the other side as the proverbial enemy to get the people uh, suspicious of people other than those in their own government. I think that's, that's going to be the, to me, the, the likely outcome because of the incentives set up. Any, any more thoughts on Ukraine? Hoping for peace. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the next one, which probably needs no real introduction, but what happened in, uh, in Gaza and, and Israel, I think caught a lot of the world's attention and obviously diverted some of it away from Ukraine, much to the chagrin of the uh, Ukrainian leadership looking for more Zog bucks or just bucks in general. But the, uh, October 7th, quote unquote, attack from the paragliders in the Gaza Strip on the uh, rave attending Israelis and others in the settlements close to the Gaza Strip caught the world's attention and has has escalated into almost a full-scale annihilation of the northern part of Gaza and attempt to push what seems to be uh, the remainder of the Gazans million-plus population into Egypt. Uh, And the what I think was fascinating and obviously what was terrifying was the the bloodshed, but the fascinating reaction to this around the world, I think caught a lot of people by surprise and has sort of had some knock on effects in the university system. Even recently with the resignation of, I think the Harvard professor or uh, president of Harvard after she wouldn't condemn the, uh, the protesters, the, Gaza-supporting protesters at Harvard who are calling for uh, attacks on Israel and things like that. Uh, the Jewish community in the United States wasn't having any of that. And the media obviously has a Jewish bias. And the ability of the the media to control the narrative, I think, has broken a lot this year. And obviously with Elon's takeover of Twitter and other platforms being a little bit more loose in terms of allowing you to speak. There's been a lot of criticism of Israel, and I think that surprised a lot of people. So let's talk about what's been happening over there. Well, it's hard to talk about anything else because it's obviously the most significant thing that's not only happened in this year, but in the past few decades. I mean, it brought the world to a point. I mean, it. I can say for my part, it's probably the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life as far as uh, 
events in world history. Like the fact that they were able to do this is just astounding. And it really, I have nothing but admiration for that kind of what those, what they were able to do and the kind of sacrifice that they knew that they were going to have to make. Uh, it really is just, you know, inshallah. Yeah. I'm less, uh, less sanguine, I guess that Nick about the, uh, the, well, okay. So it appears as though the explicit attempt was to cause some sort of Goddardamerung, uh, situation, which frankly is like their only card to play. Uh, the whole situation is so depressing because everyone is acting exactly, exactly as you would expect, uh, this sort of worst caricatures of their behavior to uh, predict and it's like why can't both sides just both lose and from the river to the sea could be just you know kind of a, a museum of dead sea tours and like bible tourism run by you know friendly old priests speaking like weird Aramaic tongues and whatnot, and you just sort of remove all the unpleasantness altogether. It's it's extremely uh, frustrating. But at this point, you know, I I think that the best, the best way to view it is simply as this uh, bizarre far off conflict and just trying to avoid it altogether. What's more interesting than than the conflict itself has been the uh, really intense uh, amalgamation of American life into the conflict. That I didn't really foresee when this happened. I, I think I figured that there would be you know, a fair amount of the usual people on both sides being pissed off and, and trying to make it as you know, consequential as they can to your day-to-day life. I don't think anybody fully understood that a huge amount of the, <clears throat> the networks that seem to have been employed in 2020 to attempt some kind of takedown of President Trump have been resurrected to one extent or another uh, to basically act as sort of anti-Zionist campaigners. That's sort of an interesting revelation that didn't really see coming. Uh, Also, how exactly did the people that are used to running those networks lose control of them, or did they lose control is, is an interesting topic. Um, and also watching, you know, the American Jewish response has been very telling. Early on, it seemed like they really, they lost control of, uh, of the messaging. Probably by like week two, they just completely lost control. And, 
it seems now their their whole strategy really seems to be one of just pure revenge, revenge both within Gaza and revenge within the United States in particular uh, against anyone who's associated with the other side. So uh, from what I can tell, there's a there's a there's a number of these Jewish organizations which are actually doxing um, random street encounters. So what'll happen is um, you'll have some like really like just ugly, like really just bizarre screaming um, Hispanic uh, getting into a verbal altercation with a uh, individual wearing an IDF sweatshirt or something. And there's these Jewish front groups that will like actually actively track down who this person is and completely get away with just doxing them. You know, their full name, where they work, their LinkedIn profile, all of it, and basically ruins their life instantaneously. Uh, you had a bunch of these Jewish groups that were, you know, openly talking about creating blacklists uh, at law firms and, and big law so that anyone who was spotted at one of these protests, if they were identified, would never, never be allowed to join one of these, you know, white shoe law firms in the United States. They'd be barred for life from working there. Um, their their employment opportunities would dry up. Uh, they've they've I mean to what Hank is saying they 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 have truly uh, become like the worst caricatures of themselves. They're extremely versus like you you can see it not working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's like the the lost control of the Golem trope. Yeah. Uh, is you know. Yes and no. Like, to what extent was was there ever an element of control versus just a, a confluence of interests and influence going both directions on the American side? Right. Yes, we, we all hate the orange man for uh, various reasons. So let us uh, let us unite the left. Yes. At basis. There, there's some open questions about how exactly all of this was allowed it to go down because it really should not yeah. be possible. I think that everybody, yeah, every, everybody seems to be in. I know in a, that some. Go ahead, Nick. Well, I know that some commentators have speculated about that. Um, Philip Girardi, who I've read for years, was uh, suggested that there was some kind of. Uh, Israeli Zionist complicity in allowing, ignoring certain intelligence signals, etc., to allow for this because of internal Israeli politics, where they wanted, well, they wanted to commit a genocide. But I don't think I think what actually happened was far more than they would have ever allowed because what the what the Hamas commandos were able to get accomplished was not anything that the Zionists would have ever wanted to accommodate for propaganda reasons uh, to justify a genocide. I mean, they went far beyond that. It's so I do the, think they got caught with their pants like down to some extent. Versus demonstrating incompetence. Right, like, right, yeah. You, it, yes. It's fine if you like, let a, a bus get blown up, but if you start losing military outposts, that's when it's like, okay, well, that that was a whoopsie. 
Well, the military outposts yeah, not were, only were that, merely I mean, they uh, raided. They, they raided the intelligence services, and that's what you've been talking about. So watch it's the heel turn in real time. Yes. They're, like every every day, it's there's just a TikTok of Israeli soldiers being like, "Hey, you want to see a war crime? Look over there." Hey, Mazel yeah, Tov. Yeah, Just, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, good good luck having any more engineers. We blew up your school, LOL. Like, yeah, some, of corpses. Like, someone made a funny joke. They were like, you know, the IDF has spent decades trying to curate its image, and you give IDF grunts a camera for 20 minutes, and... <laughs> It all just melts away in an instant. Like the average, uh, you know, like Mizrahi grunt from from Haifa. It was just like like a total dickhead. Uh, probably like you know, works at the docks or just has like a, like just not a great life. He's finally been given like you know some level of authority and uh the, the ability to to propensity you know to, to commit violence and this is kind of this is what happens it, there's no way that, these, that it wasn't these, allowed these, to happen they've been preparing for this for years yeah well i mean their their only strategic option i've said for very many years that the israeli strategic plan is to have some incident that allows for a lockdown and then in the course of that lockdown if you want to kill one guy you use a rifle if you want to kill 10 guys you use a mortar if you need to kill a million people then you need a plague and a logistical breakdown that causes a famine or you know the other way around logistical breakdown that causes a famine and then a plague that is the only way well, they that, have had a starvation blockade on Gaza well, for years. Well, their caloric intake has been fine. I mean, had been now it's not. So like that, like this is the plan being executed. So, I mean, the only strategic when you control the caloric intake of a people, that's a starvation blockade. They've had that yeah, for years. Every I mean, like that's, that's a that's a hard just, that's a hard limitation. Like of course they're controlled. Like you could say that U.S. Customs, you know, has a starvation blockade on that basis. Like material conditions in Gaza were not great, but you know they're fine-ish compared to like the slums of Cairo. I mean, this was in the past, and you know, yeah, they, yeah but the U.S. produces food, able to turn them off. But the the, the strategic response to that is, okay, well, if you plan on doing that and we're too physically weak to actually accomplish a conventional or unconventional war of any kind, then the only way that you can achieve strategic victory is by if you essentially have the entire world unite against your opponent and do the fighting on your behalf. So you're forced to engineer a atrocity against your own people in order to build that consensus that the people who are attacking your country, the country being Gaza, in this you know construction, that they need to be destroyed. 
Like that's the only way that you can accomplish defeating them. Otherwise, it's just you're waiting for the coin to flip like five times heads in a row and then boom, you're done. There's the famine, plenty of free real estate on the uh, on the Mediterranean coast. So, I mean, that's the strategic plan. It's being executed. But you just know, everyone knew that the Zionist entity had to be destroyed. The question is if they can bait Hezbollah into actually fighting. I mean, well, and the question is, why everyone always, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's easy to say, yeah, bro, you should totally throw down too, like, as you're getting your ass kicked. Uh, Hezbollah is not necessarily the, the, like, now, sure, yeah, but there is obviously no uh, operational planning. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that this was a factional concern within the uh, Hamas leadership as well. Not everybody was necessarily on board with uh, the fewer bunker plan. So Hezbollah certainly was not uh, on board, quote unquote. What seems to be happening in my estimation is the Israelis are gradually realizing that they have their own domestic constituency to deal with that fully intends on just murdering every Gaza Strip resident, just full stop. Uh, they can't necessarily not do that at that point. It's to some extent baked into the cake that they're going to be murdered or permanently ethnically cleansed. So as long as you're taking the hit from that. There are no fucking breaks. Well, I mean, you might as well also try to nuke as much Hezbollah infrastructure as you can, as long as you're taking the hit from that. That's my like view of why the situation in the north is escalating. It's not necessarily because Hezbollah is desperate to get into this. They have their own strategic imperatives, and they have a lot stronger long-term strategic position than the Palestinians do. Like they could be fine hanging out in Lebanon basically indefinitely. It's extremely unlikely that Israel is going to go full, uh, you know, biblical revanchist and send tanks to the Euphrates by way of Beirut. So, I mean, they have no reason to get into an existential death struggle over this thing. No, but it's escalating. That's exactly the point. I mean, the, as we post now, uh, the Zionist entity was carrying out assassinations by drone in Beirut. You know, and they just did an attack in, in Iran. They killed 100 yeah. some people. Yeah. In uh, the march, they had to commemorate the assassination, the orange man's assassination of Soleimani. Uh, rest in peace. You know, I, it's this can go. I, I mean, what they did, it's it, no Hezbollah was reluctant to get into this conflict. They wanted to sit pretty, but now it's being escalated and it's being forced by what was done on October 7th. Right. But you, the level of escalation fallout is, from that, like the question is whether like there, there are two questions and they're, they're linked. Like, does Israel actually have the capability to simultaneously cleanse the Gaza Strip, deal with the fallout in the West Bank, which is also increasingly restive, also wipe out Hezbollah? Like, probably not. I don't think that they actually have enough warm bodies to do that, as well as keeping their economy up Absolutely and running. Absolutely not. 
Yeah. Like it, it's the Israeli economy. The only reason this is continuing is because of the threat of American intervention. That's right. that that's the end like there's nothing else to it. Yeah. And America is not going to send grounded troops to the Middle East in an election year. It's not gonna happen. So we are barely well, yeah. So given that and it's the October surprise to end all October surprises. Well, and it would be stupid. Everybody knows Middle East war is just code for like death for no reason. It's uh, there. There's literally nothing that could happen that would justify that. There's no amount of false flags that are going to be like, well, heck, like I guess we got to storm into storm uh, up the uh, the Golan Heights now. <clears throat> it's it's not going to happen. And people don't realize how fragile the Israeli economy is. The the amount of their high IQ faction who has the ability to leave the country essentially at will is very high. They have a barbell-shaped economy that relies on the low end on cheap labor from the West Bank in order to work in the construction and agriculture sectors and at the high end on super fragile intellectual property heavy industries like drone manufacture, pharmaceuticals, chip manufacture, stuff that relies on having like 130 IQ nerds who can go and easily move to Europe or the United States or Taiwan or India or wherever the fuck they want, deciding that they're going to stay in Tel Aviv or Haifa or whatever. So if you decide that you're going to go into a multi-year total war scenario so that you can wipe out this other adjacent people, it's like, yeah, you can sustain that for months. Maybe you can sustain that for a year. You're going to do permanent damage to the structure of your country if you try to make that your national priority. There's going to be a huge boiling off effect. And a consequence of that boiling off effect is that these are also the most internationally uh, linked elites in the country they derive significant amounts of international support for Israel. So if you've got this little country that goes rogue and starts curb stomping huge numbers of Palestinians, uh, you know, for reasons, I guess, but we've decided apparently no reason is good enough uh, to just kill or expel millions of people at a time. You're having huge brain drain problems. Your labor supply dries up. Uh, all of your neighbors start to revisit their peace pacts with you for their own domestic political reasons. Your future starts to look not so rosy. So Israel is in a very uh, no-win scenario right now. Uh, I really don't know how they're going to pull it off. Uh, or if they're going to pull it off, or if they'll just kind of become Jewish Korea, Jewish North Korea. Well, let's add into that what's been happening recently with the the Houthis and the attacks on shipping vessels in the in the Red Sea, 
how do you what what do you think Hank that uh, yeah. the consequences of that are? O oil tankers have had to divert around the Horn of Africa, adding something like weeks, if not a month, to the journey and increasing costs by at least twenty five percent for transport. Yeah, I mean the Houthis. I find it difficult to uh, believe that there's never a bad idea to like kind of go uh, Ryan pirate when you're right next door to uh, really cool shipping lanes uh, and all of your neighbors are scum. You're not doing so hot yourself. You, you might wild out and just kind of go highway man on it. Uh, I don't necessarily buy the idea that the Houthis are doing this in some sense because of uh, the Gaza situation in the sense that if there was a ceasefire tomorrow, they would uh, have a reason to stop. I think there's kind of some complex reasons why they wish to uh, poke like the quote-unquote international community, which really means like their asshole neighbors uh, <clears throat> over uh, their uh, situation. I mean, you yes, can... But, but it's the myth of the struggle. It doesn't matter. Right, right. It's the myth of the struggle. They raid their ships wearing the banner of the of the struggle. So it right. doesn't... It's not important yeah. what they actually believe. Yeah, And, and you can recall the, the Saudis like, with, with American help like we're... Uh, blockading the blockading Yemen. We sent actual American warships to enforce a food blockade of Yemeni uh, ports, killing what the number like hundreds of thousands of children, uh, something like that. I mean, their population pyramid is fairly young, so, you know, that'll happen. But, you know, the Saudi, uh, the hilariously incompetent Saudi air and ground war uh, in Yemen was really a sight to behold where they just kept buying American equipment and wasting it because they can't even into complex control systems uh, to say nothing of whether it's even fit for that purpose. So, I mean, I don't really have too much to say about the, the Houthis, quote unquote, I it seems like we've got a pretty big Navy and I don't know why if we're in the neighborhood, we aren't at least, you know, bombing some strips of desert uh, around that area. It's not like it's very difficult to figure out where things are being launched from when the Houthis don't actually have an air force. So, I mean, if you have saturation coverage of their airspace, yeah, you can find these crude ballistic missiles and, uh, cruise missiles and drones. Well, some analysts have suggested that enough missiles, enough uh, cheaply made missiles, will be capable of exhausting uh, American carrier group anti uh, yeah, ship but, defense I mean, uh, when, reserves. When people when people talk about things like swarm attacks, they're talking about short term ballistic missile swarms. That's a state level thing. That's not, as far as I know, what the Houthis have. The Houthis have these like, semi-glorified sugar rockets, like World War II uh, technology level drones that have gotten super, super cheap. 
but are still not able to do the kind of coordinated swarm attacks that you would actually need in order to do something ridiculous like sink a carrier. I, it's not going to happen. If you ran out of bullets, you would withdraw, you would get more, and you would come back with twice as many. But in between, you have enough overflights of where they're launching them from that you could just wipe out that entire grid square. So I don't really understand why it's not a solvable problem. There might be some reluctance to have headlines about, you know, the United States has deployed this many drones and airstrikes and whatever in Yemen, and now we're getting into another Middle Eastern conflict. So the idea might have been just, well, we're going to scare them. They did announce an operation. Yeah, but it was limited. I mean, something and, very gay. Yeah, it was, we, I mean, we send well, carrier What was it that they called it? It was... I, I think Hank's right. Election year, this is... United States is not going to do anything big. But I think 2025, <laughs> they might just support the Saudis to knock these guys out or do it themselves directly. But I think it's not going to happen this year. Well, they've been doing that. They've been yeah, supporting the Saudis, the Saudis have had their in their shot. war. The tired of it. Yes. Like, bro, yeah. these guys, these guys. Yeah, they man. do suck. But I, I think this year it's not going to happen. Uh, I, I just don't think there's enough support for it. But yeah, I think but, but longer don't term. Don't you think this is enough of an, a disruption? It is, but it's it's a, it's it's annoying. Uh, Houthi riot is not enough to. It, it adds costs, but yeah, it's sort of like an incremental. Is... It's it's not it's not like yeah. a uh, energy shortage. It's basically just an incremental cost. I mean, if you take one million barrels of oil out of the global demand uh, for hundred million a day, it actually like doubles the the price of oil. It it is so price sense or it is so supply sensitive. But something like this, it just it just makes people wait a little bit longer. I don't think it's as critical as as energy prices skyrocketing yeah, like but that. But they're waiting a bit longer. It's it's back to the myth of the struggle, though. The thing is, they're waiting a bit longer. Any any economic disruptions that are caused by this are caused in the context of a struggle being waged against the Zionist entity, which is committing a genocide in front of the world. And all all the context of whatever repercussions come from this, they are being focused on that exact thing. And that's the beauty of it. That's why it's more important than anything else that has happened before. Because now the question of Zionism and what its costs are, what costs are incurred by the American people, the European people, anyone, the world over – the supposed fulcrum on which the world turns of the shithole state that is the Zionist occupation of Palestine is being brought into pure focus. Everything that comes from this is being brought back to that conflict. And that's something different than has ever happened before. Well, it, it happened in the 70s with, with the oil embargoes. But I think what's different this time is the United States has shale. Uh, technology. And I think unless Biden shuts it all down, which he probably would be politically uh, disinclined to do, uh, that that uh, will continue to keep prices relatively stable. Um, And I think what you say is, is interesting, because I think from points of view like yours, this Israeli conflict is really, really important. But I think for most people, 
it's sort of just, it's sugar in, in the dessert and they don't necessarily care long-term. Maybe they, maybe they should, but I'm not saying what they should do. I'm just saying what I think they will do. And I think it's akin to probably what's going to happen or what, what did happen with Ukraine is that the American public, uh, for example, will grow bored with this topic by next year. And I think at that point, the Israelis and the Zionists will be able to then stamp this out when people aren't really concerned about it. But I think now it's just too sensitive. Stamp they don't have to support. Like kill everybody. Stamp it out. Well, what stop, stop, the, stop the Houthis. I mean, nobody, nobody was talking about the Houthis I mean, uh, two years ago or the Yemenis when the Saudis were, were carpet bombing them. Nobody cared. I mean, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how the media was focused. But now, because there's so much scrutiny on Israel, I don't think they have the political ability to act. But technologically, I think Hank's right. This is a non-issue. It's a political, they have a window politically to get this done, but I don't think it's going to last is what I'm, I'm asserting. How long will it take them though to kill everybody? I mean, like how long are we talking? I, I didn't, I didn't say that's their, their campaign. Of I, I, I didn't, like, how, I didn't how long that. is it going to take? I didn't say that's what they're going to do. What do you do. mean? It's obviously their fucking goal. Everyone knows it's their goal. Well, I didn't how long say is that. It you, you could say is that. Is it going to take a year? Is it going to take two years? There's, there's like in front pussy of footing towards a goal, and then there's actually firing up the uh, the bulldozers. I mean, if you're if you're just like destroying the bulldozers, every... are fucking fired up. What do, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, there's a difference. They're gonna kill the, the oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, not to put too fine of a point on it. It's Operation Reinhard versus Auschwitz. Like there, there are difference when you're when you're trying to accomplish a population reduction by force. There are different approaches that result in different time frames and different casualty levels and have different levels of political uh, palatability. Like I don't think the Israeli cabinet is necessarily as a whole. Like I don't think Bibi Netanyahu is rubbing his hand. Yes, now is my moment. He has his own political considerations. There are definitely factions there, and there are questions about which factions are in charge of uh, which operational aspects, just like there were those same questions in other pseudo-European uh, ethnic conflicts. The point is, like, they're cleansing the Gaza Strip. They can't back down from this. They have to commit to it 100%. I mean, everybody that they purge from the north, they tell to go south— they kill them as they go south. They've they've gone full fucking metal on it. Like they're yeah. doing the ethnic cleansing. Yeah. I, I don't I mean like the question is how long is it gonna take? Right. The Hamas is, resistance state, is, is going to create state, a problem state, for them. There there's like a plausible future where they annex the north half of the strip and then declare a ceasefire. Or, you know, something to that effect. That's like, possible. Yeah, but it doesn't like when they're defeated militarily through guerrilla war struggle. That's possible outcome. I, but I in the meantime, you still have the other actors with Hezbollah. Yeah. I mean, you have whatever is going to happen in southern Lebanon. I mean, this could go like this. This is going to be developing throughout the. the it's difficult to make predictions about this, but this is the only thing that really matters in the context of American foreign policy. I mean, forget the fucking Ukraine. Like, this is it. 
predictions are difficult about the future. I don't know exactly where this ends, other than uh, you know, it'd probably be better if it ended earlier. Well, obviously, it's extremely important and, and sensitive topic, it- which, which we'll have uh, much more to, to see here. Uh, do you guys want to cover some of the other events? Because uh, yeah, we, I, we have, I, have, I have quite a bit. So uh, just just to try to wrap up somewhat the geopolitical stuff, I'll just list out what I had, and then you guys can grab what sounds good. Um, so sort of on the on the back of this this Gaza, Middle Eastern, Ukrainian mess. Uh, there was that sort of weird ad that came out for the U S army showing a bunch of Southern good old boys and, and no, uh, people of color when they realize it might actually get real suddenly. Uh, I'll, I'll put that on the table. Uh, the next one I had was, um, th- there's been, we, we talked about or foreshadowed this a bit in the last uh, year in review last year about the, the problems in Mexico. It hasn't necessarily spilled, violently across the border. It's sort of at the border and below the border, but there were some American tourists killed by the cartel in, in March. Uh, and they're, you know, there's, it's just a mess. Um, Mexico's a mess. Uh, and then there's been some elections that have happened that are notable in the Netherlands, Italy, maybe, and also Argentina with a uh, right of center candidates getting elected, sort of more populist, uh, quote-unquote anti-immigrant. In the case of the first two or one and a half, Italy's not really sure about what she's doing. And then uh, the guy in Argentina, Mile, uh, we may actually do a show on that soon, Uh, this uh, libertarian chainsaw-wielding politician taking taking a weapon to the bureaucracy down there. I thought those were interesting. Uh, There's also been some obvious movements uh, with China, the attempts to de-dollarize the... Uh, oil deals between Russia and China and India, I think, are notable because of the lack of involvement of the petrodollar, the attempt to get the petro yuan or renminbi in place to try to further uh, destabilize the, the U.S. financial sector's uh, dominance internationally. Um, I think those are those are the, the main ones I had uh, for the geopolitical stuff. You guys want to comment on any of that? Yeah, my understanding is the dude in Argentina, I think he cloned his dog. I didn't hear about that. that. No. Cloned his dog. Why? Cloned his dogs. Yeah. They're all named after libertarian economists, I believe. Yeah, he was probably, he was named after like Milton Friedman or something, and he cloned him. I don't know what kind of dog it was. I think maybe it was a French bulldog, but I'm not sure. Very good boy. But uh, yeah, he he cloned. What, his what dog. is he, the significance of the cloning yeah, to apparently you? Apparently, he was a good boy. I mean, well, he could have just got just another an dog. Weirdo. Yeah, he's, he's was, got the tism. Well, what's yes. weird? Yeah, what's interesting, I guess, is that like you have this strange, strange eccentric who was able to win. Nobody thought he was like a meme before, like his candidacy existed long before his victory. I mean, people were joking about it for a while. And the fact that he, I I will say, this is something I did pay a little bit of attention to. And I was very surprised that he won because he's a very strange character. 
And it appears that after he's won, he's just simply gone on to do all the things that um, Latin American proxy Zog uh, dictators do. So it's a bit strange. I don't really know. I haven't talked to anybody in Argentina or anything like that. Well, uh, we'll, we'll put a bookmark. We'll, we'll put a bookmark uh, in that. Candidates that don't go anywhere. They don't tend to win elections. We, we may be having a, a guest to help us understand that topic better. Um, if there's nothing more on on that, I, I agree. He's very strange, but uh, interesting. Uh, we can go to the next set of topics if that works for you. Well, sure. Let's talk about China. Go ahead. No, I mean you had some content for China. Let's let's hear that. That's, no, I I, I we, covered, we I covered it. I, I I covered China. I mean, the only thing I didn't mention was the sort of uh, bite dance TikTok uh, hearings in the United States. But I, I mentioned the uh, the petro yuan. Well, the, that's the, just the, Israel the content. The only reason anybody's talking about TikTok is because of Israel. You want to expand? Maybe maybe you can expand. Uh, People are putting out. I don't quite understand. Yeah, people are mad about TikTok because um, there's a lot of anti-Zionist memes being put up on TikTok. Oh, that may be true, uh, but the Jews are very angry about that. Before October, there was plenty of criticism. You you can look back. There were hearings in Congress about uh, ByteDance, the company that owns TikTok. Uh, No, I'm sure it amplified the uh, the pressure with October, but I think that's been an issue that's post uh, or, or predates, predates the uh, Gaza conflict. Yeah. Well, uh, 2023 is best understood as everything that happened before October 7th and everything that happened after. <laughs> so, I mean, everything that happened before really doesn't matter as much. I see. All right. Well, I, I, I gave a couple of uh, notes on, on China. If, if anybody else wants to mention anything, I mean, I don't speak Mandarin, but, uh, you know, I just, I just view them as sort of a uh, sort of hostile power uh, that, uh, you know, I also view the U.S. government as a hostile power, by the way, but I'm not, I'm not saying it's necessarily that simple as U.S. versus China, but uh, I, I don't think they're our friend as the average American. Uh, but, well, you does know, anyone have anything to with respect to the Taiwan situation, uh, does anyone have any comments on that? Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Left off last I, I, think, year, I think that's as far important. As escalation. Yeah, I think it's it's unlikely to happen. <laughs> that's my take. <laughs> but what do you guys think? Well, supposedly there is a window from uh, like late spring to uh, mid summer when the sea currents are favorable. And that's the the only window in which a proper invasion is possible. And I just, uh, I'm on team nothing happens with uh, the Taiwan Strait. There's there's enough domestic stuff going on in China. Uh, They have enough concerns that I don't really see why they would uh, want to roll the dice of their entire regime stability given their other competing priorities uh you know Xi seems to have solidified rule pretty substantially but at the point at which he's just 
ordering 10 million Chinese uh, conscripts to uh, swim into the Taiwan Straits, I think uh, his uh, his personal security starts to become a little bit tenuous as well. Yeah, and, and there was, uh, obviously, it caught the uh, domestic U.S. political uh, press's attention when Xi visited uh, San Francisco uh, a month or two ago, and the, the criticism of the San Francisco government was that they finally cleaned up the streets when a foreign government official appears. Uh, we can get into that more, but I think it, it demonstrates that the Chinese economy is not as strong as perhaps uh, one might assume. And I think the, the charm offensive of the premier going to Silicon Valley to try to drum up essentially uh, contract manufacturing investment in China, I think is telling that Xi is, is not as strong as some may believe. And I think he's he's trying to keep what he has and partly why I don't think taking the gamble on Taiwan is, is likely. Was the uh, Nancy Pelosi flight to Taiwan was this year? Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe last up. Maybe last year. I can't remember. Yeah, it might have mm-hmm. been last year. Okay. Well, one thing I'll say about the Taiwan thing is, do you have, I mean, I've always thought this was really dumb because it doesn't seem that you actually have like an army that wants to fight because they want independence from mainland China because they don't. So where do you get like the people who are willing to die for your, I mean, Ukraine you do because there's a lot of people who have intergenerational butthurt, um, which some of which is uh, perfectly understandable intergenerational butthurt to be fair. Like I get it. Like I, I do fucking get it. But at the same time, like, yeah, uh, doesn't mean you want to kill every fighting age male in your country uh, for a war that can't be won. But that being said, like in the the Taiwan thing, it it seems like it's just a meme in the Western press. Like in the uh, in the Zog press, there's this idea that like Taiwan is a different country than China. But elsewhere in the world, it's understood that Taiwan actually just is part of China. And this isn't really a question of like the sovereignty of a country, because certainly there's no soldiers for that country that want to fight a war to become an independent power. I mean, that was a long, we could do a whole program on this. I mean, the history of Taiwan and where that comes from, like Chiang Kai-shek and all of that. But the KMT and all that, that's all over. I mean, Taiwan actually just is China. It just has certain sort of contracts with the West. And it's all sort of murky, but it's not like a political war scenario where people are willing to, like, fight and die because they don't want to be China, even though they are China. Empirically, your willingness to fight and die increases dramatically the instant that you start getting bombed. So, I mean, wars create their own uh, opposition. Would China bomb them? Though? Would, would the mainland bomb Taiwan? I mean, you, you can discuss something that would ever happen. Like, about, well, what if they blockade and try some sort of economic thing? And then at which point the U.S. Navy would just blow them out of the water. So I don't see what the point of a blockade would be. Uh, but, I mean, you, you can posit various 
tactical scenarios, but at the point at which there is uh, a bona fide uh, invasion, like their their military and especially their conscript military, uh, every Taiwanese dude that I've talked to is like, yeah, it's completely ornamental. Uh, the uh, the generals are idiots. Uh, we stood around in barracks for the duration of our duty, barely got to touch a real weapon. I have no idea what I would be supposed to do if an actual shooting war uh, broke out. I would imagine that their professional uh, air force and their professional navy are substantially uh, more on the ball, and their strategic thinking is that well. If it comes to ground combat in the Taipei, we're we're fucked. So let's not even just worry about that. Uh, so that's that's my guess. But I would have no problem believing. But they also that. are just China. Excuse me. They're they're like ninety percent Han. Well, they're like ninety percent Han Chinese. Yeah, I mean, they're they're just Chinese there's, people. There's, I mean, do you want to even begin to estimate the number of Chinese that have died in inter-Chinese uh, warfare? It's literally their favorite thing to do. Okay, yeah, fair point, I guess, but I don't think they're very motivated to do it. I think usually just some emperor decides that they wanted to do like a mass casualty event. And, yeah, you don't need to be know, super, super there. motivated. It, like, the... Everyone's prediction for how a Taiwan Strait conflict would go down relies heavily on uh, Tom Clancy techno war trope sort of uh, situations where you have professional militaries exchanging missile barrages until uh, everyone is sunk. There's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, Private Chang like darting across machine gun fire to drop one into the the machine gun bunker, like it's uh it's it, if it gets to you that. Do you think this point, is a possible war? It's of course it's possible, but I think it's unlikely. I mean, I've already said why. What about the rest of South Asia? I mean, like uh, uh, Korea's and all that. Is there anything to update? How are the Kims doing? They're fine. Yeah. Nobody's firing off rockets we should pay attention to. Uh, waiting just hanging out. to see if uh, if Trump is gonna get the band back together so they can they can chill out and play some golf. Yes, South South Korean game shows continue to take over Netflix, but other than that I, I don't really know what they're doing. All right, on the home front, perhaps. Well, so we've covered most of the world. Is there Let's advance? Yeah, sure. The home front, i.e., where you live. Top one I'd like to talk about is just this border situation. I just saw a tweet from uh, Twitter today that the border crossings have reached record numbers uh, during the Biden administration at 12 million compared to five under both Trump and Obama. Um, I, I, I just, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, it, it's, it's an actual invasion. The, um, the press sort of don't, doesn't really focus on it, 
but the social media sphere is is all over it and i think that's a good thing but uh, I, i'd like to hear what you guys think and it's obviously not just the united states I mean, it's happening in europe as well but yeah um, all these numbers because they're very high people treat them as real and you want to take those numbers and you want to jack them up by a lot because those numbers are the people who do this kabuki dance where they walk across the border. Maybe you've rented an eight-year-old for the day. You find La Migra and you're like, asylum, por favor. And they give you your court date in 2045 and send you on your way to New York City. I'm only exaggerating very slightly. But on top of that, that's, that is the number that they're counting, where they're saying X million per uh, month at this point. But on top of that, you've got the people who don't want to encounter the Border Patrol because they've been previously deported. They are from uh, states that do not have good relations with the United States, where they clearly have affiliations with those states. And they want uh, to be not on the radar of the United States federal government. And they scamper. Uh, those, those people are not showing up in statistics. It would be great because it's not, again, that difficult to get drone coverage of all plausible coverage points. Like, you could still make an estimate, but we've made a policy of not making that estimate. So we have no idea how many of these gotaways are on top of the the regular flow. I would guess another third on top of uh, the uh, the turn-ins. It's a catastrophe. Like it's it's very bad, and it's clearly an attempt to make sure that the horse is well and truly out of the barn uh, before the uh, the gate is shut, so that. Any attempt to actually remedy the situation in a durable or permanent manner uh, results in as much uh, bad optics footage as possible. I watched some video this year of that bald dude. Everybody watches that bald dude. Yeah. Who no, travels. That is he great. did some I've stuff in like West Virginia. Yeah, I've shown that the bald dude. Times. Yeah, bald and bald. Well, not to dox too hard, but. You're not. No, no, no. That's the Jew. I'm talking about the uh, the American. Okay. The, the bald bankrupt. He's the Jew who got kicked out of her. You never seen him. His name is uh, Peter Santanello. Never seen him. I'm, oh yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah. He's like a uh, yeah, same, guys, yeah. same genre. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, so I'm he, referring. I watched a, I watched some content of him. And, yeah, you watch. You're talking about the Jew. Yeah. So the non-Jew, uh, Peter Santanello, he, he uh, I watched some stuff of him in uh, Mexico City. And I thought it was interesting because I was like, wow, Mexico City. I, it's been many years since I've been. I, I have been to Mexico, um, but it's been many years since I have been. And uh, Mexico City seems like a much more livable city than any American city that I'm familiar with. And I think that's interesting because why, like, why is it that, like, this horde of like being well, Mexicans don't want them. That, that's, the, around, like, the, that's the blocks. dirty secret uh, is that the elites in Mexico like the fact that their underclass is heading north. 
they don't want them any more than we do. And, you know, where do they congregate? They're in places like Mexico City. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. It, it's a Castizo upper class and a Mestizo underclass, and nobody wants the latter. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, but at the same time, like, uh, I'd rather live in Mexico City than, I don't know, San Francisco at this point. The we'll only interesting question, I think, because it's on a pretty straight trajectory, but there's enough pressure and optics that it's possible that they try to do some sort of optics check on the border between now and November. Like when you have New York City uh, through completely self-inflicted policies where they have self-mandated that they provide uh, housing and a certain amount of cash to uh, every warm body that requests it from their city government. Uh, A policy duplicated at no place else on earth at any point in human history. uh, It is insane. But that's what they've decided to do, and it's resulting in a fallout that it's actually becoming extremely visible to uh, the important people of America who live, generally speaking, in the affected area. What do you think, uh, using the royal, uh, the royal y'all, uh, think is the likelihood that there is some attempt to temporarily uh, halt the uh, border influx between now and November? Oh, I think that's a good chance. It looks bad. It, it looks bad. Yeah, and, and it is bad. It actually has a direct effect. Yeah, but who, who cares about the border influx? Voters. Voters. I mean, the beaners are already there. So, what difference does it make who's coming across the border when the beaners already exist and are already causing the problems that beaners cause? I don't. I think you're. You, you know, you're not going to have a constituency. Well, I'm just saying, like, the people who matter, they don't care about who's coming across the border. They come across, they give a shit about who is affecting their shit where they live. Right. They're not concerned about policy when it comes to the border. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, it is new. Yeah, you're right. That's yeah, a new development for 2023. Yeah. Like, en masse. And, you know, you, the idea of mestizos immigrating in order to work in agriculture is no longer true. You're, you're having, like, surprise... Abilene, Texas, here are 500 Haitians. Deal with it. Fuck you. Like, that's the the level of, uh, you know, not Abilene. Abilene probably has plenty of experience. Like, you know, Rapid City, like Big Sky, Montana. Like, I'm just rattling off uh, Google uh, <clears throat> Google articles here. But the point is that these yeah. are... These are like concentrations that are actually difficult to deal with. And the only way that you're able to deal with them is by uh, placing them in areas with large amounts of logistical infrastructure, which means developed urban areas with expensive real estate and local elites that matter. So like you're now starting to piss off those people specifically. You had a phenomenon 
I observed in uh, the last year that we're supposed to be talking about where you had um, state like meme governors uh, sending like a certain quantity, a small quantity, of course, of beaners to uh, libtard strongholds as like a, a way to own them. And it's the whole thing's kind of funny. I mean, it's funny in like a tragic sense because when you compare our situation to Europe, where you have an influx of uh, refugees from the Zionist wars and all these people who just 100% do not belong there, not to imply that the American Negro belongs here. Uh, the issue is that in America, like we have long dealt with people who are not us and do not belong here. And we have all kinds of laws in place to make sure that we have to tolerate um, them raping our daughters and our sisters and uh, basically just making our lives shit. And so it's just kind of funny when beaners come in, especially when they come into like Negro areas. It's one of the stories about Compton, right? Where the Negroes were essentially cleansed from Compton by the more competent uh, beaner uh, criminal organizations. And it's all just kind of funny because we live in a collapsed, like, retard country that, you know, nothing works. And, you know, there's no pretense to any of this being a society. So it's easy to laugh when, like, you send a bunch of juniors to, like, upstate New York or, like, uh, Martha's Vineyard or something. And you can kind of understand why it is it was funny in the first place. But it's all just like really stupid and tiresome because like when I see beaners, for example, I just get angry because I'm like, why the fuck are beaners even here? Uh, I live in a place where nobody gets paid anything anyways. So like, why am I even seeing beaners? Because you're now undercutting the already underpaid labor. And I don't know. I'm just, it's also fucking tiresome. Right. Seems as though the future is getting more, uh, more tiresome, more dare I say, trash world esque uh, in its trajectory. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of cyberpunk guys. I think that's uh, start taking notes. Um, <laughs> get your get your augments uh, figured out. <laughs> I don't think we're. I don't think there's any other choice. Um, all right. Well, that was that was it's the main so thing. Fucking bad. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And and you can loot uh like, with impunity. What are these, like fucking dumb-eyed Guatemalans doing wandering around. Like what the fuck is the purpose of this? Oh yeah, the purpose is to undercut white labor and make sure you have no political future. Like fuck you. Yeah. We we uh we feel you. We're a ray of sh sunshine in an otherwise bleak winter here. <laughs> um, I don't know. I didn't have too much else that you guys probably want to touch on. I, uh, it's, it's just more well, of the same like there's, you... there's, uh, on this home front subject. Uh, what, what's that, Nick? What the fuck is the future? What the fuck is the future? Like, what are you supposed to fucking do? Uh, most I people mean, can't can't do much, unfortunately. Um, if you have the skills, 
you you do what you can, but unfortunately, it's not easy. I believe there is a uh, an illustration. You're you're supposed to join the uh, the Han Ashkenazi overclass at the apex of the pyramid. Uh, if I have my uh, my diagrams correct here, I forget who's who's holding the uh, the carrot pole in front of whom. I, I is is it the aliens <laughs> or are they behind? Or, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's the Jew. It's always the Jew. It's always some it's some astral metaphysical version of the Jew. The Jew morphs into I mean, various that, forms the, of the. That's the, the interesting the, thing. There was a brief moment of lucidity. You, you have to understand, you know, imagine all of the money held by the money and influence held by the boomer class of Americans. And now multiply that by the money and influence and derangement of like Holocaust grandpa who is terrified that the Nazis are going to. Uh, come into like his his like Ohio law firm or whatever and like throw him in the camps and so as a result he gives like a hundred thousand dollars a year to random charity X who happens to have a sideline in population replacement like that's it's like the uh the IQ does not roll all the way, uh, all the way down to its uh, constituent providing of resources here, uh, which is to say that, I, that when I, people like Bill Ackman yeah. had a had like a momentary realization that, oh, this horde that I imported uh, is not down to clown with uh, our very special people in our very special. Uh, place uh, maybe that's a problem in some sense and they're they're sort of trying to roll it around in their mind like if and what uh, to do about any of this phenomenon if it's perhaps just a uh, a temporary speed bump on the way to uh, repair the world yeah. What do you do? Yes. What do you do for Tikkun Olam with the new generation of Goy cattle? And that brings the question that I want to ask Hank. I'm curious. What do you guys think? Ask Adam too. I mean, about the the generational problem. Like, as we approach the die off of the boomers, what are the consequences of this politically? Financially, what, what do mean, you see when you talk about the people die-off, get old and die? Like, yeah, when you, when you talk about the die off of the boomers, it's not so much of like generational change is a thing, but what's a bigger problem is like declining fertility is a really big fucking problem, and it hasn't sunk in for a lot of people. Uh, like. I mean, if you look at someplace like the South Korean population pyramid where they're at 0.8, that understates the magnitude of the problem because of the timelines for when that kicks in and their uh, average age that they have that 0.8 of a baby. So it's already baked into the cake that, you know, in 40 years, there's going to be like 
it was like six times fewer like of uh of 40 year olds walking around in korea than there are today oh it it's yes. the, the pyramid is dreidel shaped for sure yeah. uh and, and, and I, it's a similar situation in much of the united states yeah yeah the, so, the only exceptions i've seen are basically utah uh and you don't really have to think too hard about why trajectory like every it's every it's heading down you're right but yeah but in terms of replacement every place is, is even even you know the amish uh they have a significant boil off and they have uh significant problems uh maintaining high fertility indefinitely like the and the solution the purported solution is well, it's fine if Joe and Amy don't have kids because uh, we'll be able to maintain our labor supply with uh, yeah, Ho- Ho- Jose with and, and, and Ariella. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, hell of a plan. Uh, that is not going to cause anything good. Uh, it's this, this I mean, a it, Peter Zihon take. That's it, why it we're better than. The evil uh, Russians and the Chinese is because we have the ability to tap into a third world population that, by the way, when they come to uh, the Norte, their demographic numbers, their uh, birth rate drops precipitously. It does. And, of course, you have problems because they're not net productive. They're, They're not net productive. Like you can yeah. you can make the claim that well if we shifted yeah, government no policy, I don't mean to imply that it's okay that, that that's a good thing because fuck them like we want a white future for the North American continent I don't want to be ambiguous about that like yeah I mean it's obviously this not, continent it's, belongs to the white right. race if you are going to do some but sort of I'm weird internal colonialism yeah. you could do some sort of a weird Roman style like you know, cool, we're going to form like a tributary yeah, yeah. Yeah. colony in Baja, California, and it's like, Pedro can be right, right, right. this particular... My point uh, is that they're wrong, like, they're wrong in that they're traitors to begin with, and they've betrayed the race, they've betrayed our people, they've betrayed our history, <laughs> fuck them. Uh, but on the other hand, they're also just wrong because it's yeah. not actually true. Like right. Jose is not and, going to make up your demographic shortfall. And the demographic shortfall is it is going to reify in weird ways. The the hollowing out of middle class infrastructure provider type uh, roles uh I mean, if you want some real horror show, look at look at the combination of uh, the TFR of uh, military families and then how much of military service is effectively hereditary in nature. Uh, that should be a wake up call uh, for like Zihanites, because now you're talking about well, we're, we're simply going to draft the, uh, the Haitian refugees. Like, that's, that's where that leads. Uh, so, I mean, it's, 
you'll you'll see entire sectors of the economy that effectively implode and are forced to either simplify dramatically or require investing huge amounts of uh, capital in order to uh, boost productivity high enough to make entire subsystems sustainable. This, Adam, this does look extremely cyberpunk. Like, this is just following the script. Yeah. What are we we looking at on a timeline? Like, to give advice to the listener, I mean, like... Oh, uh, I I can say very, very quickly... What, What do you think? Like... Things are going to look like California. Uh, that that's basically where this sort of beaner apocalypse has has really demonstrated what happens to your public school systems. I mean, the UC system is shutting down standardized testing for their admissions processes. Uh, the, the businesses are leaving, and they're going to Texas, ironically, which demographically is actually already showing signs of Californication. So I think this that that's that's you don't have to look any further than that. I think. California was made artificially sustainable because California itself was a population sink drawing off of ambitious white kids from the Midwest and South and like everywhere that's not New York. Yeah. And that, that, that shifted. So what do you do? I mean, I think, yeah, but I think there are pockets of California that are going to be better off than a lot of other places in the country because, well, yeah, of course. No, no, it's a beautiful piece of <laughs> beautiful, yeah. beautiful place. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I mean, Ro- I'm Rob Reiner's going like, to be doing just fine. A lot fine. of other places. No, that's not my point. My, my point is that a lot of other places don't know what's coming for them. There's parts of California that have sort of adjusted to the cyberpunk future. Oh, yeah. And they, they sort of get it. But there's, yeah, yeah, there's places that are especially in the West, which is really all I can speak to because all I know that have no fucking clue what's coming for them as yep. far as the conditions under which they have to live yeah. and what their future looks like and what yes, it's yeah. Some, someone I, in Sacramento think, generally yeah, speaking knows what the score is like the, uh, the Chinese merchants yes, in yes. Sacramento have a full on militia. They're all just, strapped for whatever the uh, the chinese word for uh, for race war is at any given moment uh it's it's actually very funny to uh to have a uh, have a chat with these people uh, they're extremely uh they're, they're clear pills and they have a lot more understanding of they get the score more than a lot of these patriotards you find in in the rural west who are completely fucking delusional well, that's every more, level. I, I mean, yeah. there, this is not a uh, this is not like a rural light. It's when you look around and your concrete, immediate, material circumstances are essentially pleasant, which describes huge swaths of the United States. There are a ton of really nice suburbs that are still relatively affordable with relatively good schools all over the country. Uh, as long as you have a career that allows you to like live in those places in some capacity or you're willing to make certain sacrifices, like you can make your life... Do, really do those sacrifices include signing on to a 
genocide in uh, the Gaza Strip. Like, uh, I, mean, I you have to commit fully to dismembering forward. Palestinian children. Uh, yeah, yeah right. Israel was not involved, but uh, yeah, Ukraine is its ups and downs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was over, folks. <laughs> All right. Well, um, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to come up with anything uh, that's a turnkey solution for anybody uh, with regard to the collapse of the country. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll maybe save that for another show. Um, the, uh, the, the remaining topics I had, uh, just to be conscious of time are technology, pop culture, and sort of the election cycle. Um, I would like let's, to get, let's skip the election. We, yeah, we can do that. That's fine. Um, I would, I we, would like we're to skipping the election. Is that what's happening? It's in uh, November. Are we skipping it? Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see how we feel. We'll see how we feel. But what I wanted to really, really get to, and I'm not alone in this because Nick is back. Uh, it's a fan, fan favorite topic. Um, Nick and I and everybody else hopefully uh, can discuss the uh, the peak, the decline, the rise, the fall of Elon uh, this year. Um, I think there's just been. A never ending. Oh, he's your favorite guy. Series of he's well, your top guy. I, I'll give you my take on him, but I, I will admit I've I've even experienced a little Elon fatigue this year. Uh, but I, I will say he has demonstrated very clearly to the left that he is not a fan of them, and he has suffered some consequences because of that and getting to the point where the government is actually targeting him. Well, the, uh, the, the, the government has mm. sued SpaceX. Uh, they've actually really neglected uh, Tesla these days in anything regarding the government's policy with regard to green energy policy. Uh, and Biden's actually been caught saying we need to look into that guy, uh, quote unquote, on Elon. And so he's he's like you know he's a mafioso at this point, uh, calling out a hit on on a rival. So we're really at the point where America revolves around like libtards being butthurt on the internet. Is that really where we're at? No, I'm not saying that. I, I just wanted did. I just wanted to bring it up uh, because it we, appears we, that way. We got into that. No, no. I year. mean, I'm drawing conclusions from what you're saying, and it appears that that's actually where we're at. Really matters. Some of our intellectual histories and pretend like, you know, nice young liberal boy goes on internet, gets his first dose of hardcore racism and changes. Like that is a uh, that is a canonical ideological progression for huge swaths of society. So yeah, I mean it happens, it's a beautiful thing. It's a shame, you know, some people it takes until they're like 45 with nine kids or whatever. Uh, some people, you know, at more tender ages. But uh, it's always, always great to have one more, uh, one more, one more saint in the choir. Well, Nick, what, what you- happens? Do you think people in their late 40s like really have a like come to Hitler moment? 
how much of it is uh, a revelation versus deciding to reveal a power level versus like a implicit power level acquiring like ideological valence as opposed to just kind of uh, vague behavioral notes. Uh, you know, I think you need to know the guy on a personal basis in order to make those sorts of evaluations. But there's uh, there's no world in which he's like unfamiliar with these sorts of things in passing and apparently lacks mm. like an ideological gag reflex to them given the circles. Like I'm talking about personal circles given like if you, uh, I'm well, I'm I'm curious about that because personally speaking, I've never really seen anybody in my experience. People over the age of I don't know thirty or so uh, really are incapable of learning anything new, and on a fundamental level, like I mean, maybe they learn certain facts or something, uh, but. I've never really seen anybody over the age of 30 make a fundamental change in their understanding. Well, of the, that's what I'm saying. Cosmos, it's not necessarily so a fundamental change. Like you can have a fairly deep instinctual understanding that, yeah, there are different kinds of people in the world and you can relate to that fundamental understanding on an intellectual level in a way that changes over time. You can like, you can come at it with like a libtarded, oh, there, there are different kinds of people in the world and we're all going to be one tan, like homogenous blob with socialism light and Medicare for all. Or you can be like, yeah, there are different kinds of people in the world and they do different kinds of things in different kinds of places. I mean, like the, that's what I'm saying. You would, you would need personal knowledge of somebody's internal mental states in order to say whether a really just like a change in emphasis uh, is indicative of an actual ideological shift or just like the ideological valence of beliefs about reality that you already had. So did we make progress then in uh the context of the Twitter saga? Is this? <laughs> I don't know. You guys were speaking in, in uh, incredible gen generalities here. Um, but I, I, I just, I'll, I'll go through the news real quick and maybe that'll give us some more specifics. Uh, so I, I look, like I said, I'm, I'm a little bit over touting Elon because I think everybody's noticed at this point what he's sort of pushing, but for those that are still sort of skeptical of him, and, and I don't mind that, by the way, I just want to sort of put the facts on the table, and then I'd like to hear what the sort of interpretation of that is. Zionism is what he's pushing in, because 2023 is when Elon went to Israel. That's what happened in 2023. He went to Israel. So you pick you one thing, Adam, and, and you use that to define... I did. I did see that. He went to meet Netanyahu, but... 
you know, I, I, I don't, yes. I don't think that's, that's a fair assessment of somebody. If you're going to look at one aspect, if you look at a man's hat, uh, but you ignore his jacket, his, his shirt, look his pants, his shoes, quite closely it's, at it's, a man's it's, hat. It's a quite I look minimal. Exactly. At what shape a man's hat is, is the hat round? <laughs> okay. Good starting point. But... Small. What shape is the man's hat? Okay. All right. Well, do you want to hear anything else, or do you want to move on? I, I if if we if you're just going to sort of reduce everything, we're, we're strapped for time. Yeah, no, I mean, let's move on. It's more entertaining just, to do these things in a lightning yes, round fashion than trying to get to the bottom of stuff. Okay. Uh, yes, yes. We'll not get to the bottom of it. We we stay at the top of it where the hat is. Got it. All right, glad you're back, Nick. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the technology topic that's that's left. I guess we're not going to do anything. Test well, the Cybertruck came out, but I, you know, whatever. Um, Chat GPT was something that came out last year, but I think we were pressed for time at at that point in the show. But I think this year has been, from a tech point of view, the year of the consumerization of AI. AI has been around for a long time, and really, what people mean when they say AI, or maybe not what they mean, but what they what they're referring to in practice is machine learning, uh, and in particular, this latest round is on large language models, which is effectively consuming the corpus of the conversations on the internet to create an interface in a chatbot that lets you ask it questions in a human-like fashion and then get answers that are discernible in a sort of conversational way that's basically what 2023 was on the ai front uh if you're going to talk about you know general artificial intelligence we're definitely so not there real yet. i don't know what your question is referring to but uh but the chat gpt is just one of the instances of this google has also uh, I, I to be honest, I've I've used their iteration Bard, and then they're coming out with this thing called Gemini, which uh, on a metric basis, of course, they're reporting it themselves, so you can't really trust that. But uh, on a on a practical basis, the uh, the Bard system actually is quite good, and I don't find ChatGPT to actually be all that great. Now I haven't really paid for the the, the latest version, but um, I think they're not going to be able to. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily going to be able to sustain the dominance given how much all these other companies with deep pockets are going to go after them. Uh, Sam Altman got fired and rehired. Um, you know, he, he's a weird one because he's got this uh, world coin thing, which, you know, for me in particular, demonstrates in, in, in a nutshell what the guy's about, which is this sort of surveillance technology that gives the third world a, a, a token of this uh, fake currency he's trying to get rolled out and uh, in return he gets to have a retinal scan of every person on the planet super creepy uh and i think the reason he got fired was really not related to things like that it's just that the uh the board didn't like the fact that they weren't being honest with him <laughs> regardless of whether he's honest with the public i think it's besides their point uh but ai i mean i think you 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 can't go beyond 2023 without mentioning it um so I'll open up the floor. What do you guys think about this this whole thing? Yeah, it's it's big. It's I, have, good I have only questions. Okay. I, I mean, since uh, <laughs> since we started, actually, we started a few years back. I mean, in uh, 2014 or 2015, it's always been a suspicion that when people are posting on the internet that they might be, um, you know, bots, right? So 
what is it really changed that we know now that it's more, more people are bots or that more posts are bots? Okay, so yes, on, a, on a numerical, why, why is it important that they're fools? I don't know what, what you mean. I mean, it's it's always helpful to be able to control people, and one of the mechanisms is by deception, right? So the easier it is to do that, yes, the more but powerful. Retards the tool. are sufficient, right? Like if you have enough retards posting on the internet, I don't know why bots are better than retards, because the average American public. Well, you know, that's posting on the internet, you know, they're sufficient largely to generate the illusion all that you really yes. need as the government to say, it's not that they're writing on any kind of real popular support. So I'm not understanding the purpose of botting things. Like, for example, the, the Jews are carrying out a genocide in Palestine and the JIDF, uh, the Jewish Internet Defense Force, is being largely mobilized to provide cover for this, but anyone who gives a shit isn't falling for it. It's one of those situations where there's no one in the middle. Like, you just have, like, retard boomers who support the Jewish genocide of their enemies, and then you have, like, normal people who think that, like, bombing hospitals is wrong. So what's the purpose exactly? I've never understood this. All right. Like, uh, okay, can I, can I try a, to respond? Yeah. So I, I think you perhaps yeah, perhaps inadvertently, but I think somewhat insightfully through your intuition, bring up a good point is that what really distinguishes the latest crop of bots versus the, the previous ones. And and I think your your point really is getting at is like, well, the bots were, were stupid to begin with. And if if really what we're doing is trying to imitate uh, people who are also stupid, we're not really improving upon that. I think that's that's a fair observation. And I think without actually, perhaps you don't understand well, how this stuff who works. Who are you trying but, to sell? But what, what you do with you, this stuff is you, you train point. it. You train this computer system on what's been written down by the public. And if you, if you point it at Facebook, you're, you're going to get Facebook back. Um, but if you put in scientific papers if you put in people who do math for a living you 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 get some interesting results and also the scale at which you do it at and hank i think can speak to this matters so going back 10 years ago uh, or even three years ago there has been a 10 hundred or almost a thousand times increase in the sophistication of these models what does that mean it's basically the the brain size has gotten bigger in terms of the number of parameters it's actually keeping track of. And the more parameters you have in it, it's going from 100 million to a billion to 100 billion to a trillion. It's, it, it creates that uncanny valley and then it almost passes the Turing test for sophisticated people. I mean, th this video that Google just put out, okay. this Google Gemini thing, it's basically, and it's highly edited, but it's it's a... Of course, it's an Indian guy, but he's he's drawing a duck on a piece of scrap paper and he's got a camera pointed at the thing and he's he's talking to this AI and it's like, OK, what am I drawing? And he's like, well, uh, you know, it appears to be some sort of uh, waterfowl. Uh, well, OK. And well, what if what if I told you it could float? Well, it might be a duck. And he starts coloring it blue. Well, um, I, most ducks are not blue. However, there is a species. OK. And it's this species. 
it's a level of sophistication and this is not text based this is not uh this is image based with a conversation it's multimodal that and maybe you can explain what that means because i've just heard that term recently but it's it's much much more sophisticated than you're going to homedepot.com and you have a question about aluminum siding versus vinyl siding and you you interact with these really stupid bots which basically just give you links to like their internal web pages versus actually being able to interact with you in almost uh, a way where you can't tell it's it's a, a computer that's sort of the turing test um <clears throat> i i'm very i I understand the Turing, I, I, and I want to hear what Hank says because yeah, yeah. I know that I'm definitely missing something. However, I just wanted to say I don't understand the difference between a simulated retard and an actual retard. That is, if you can simulate someone being retarded uh, or you could create someone who is retarded, I'm not sure from a perspective of the political what the difference really is because if you can Automa- raise someone auto- on automation of automation. television and jewish automation it's faster it's yes. cheaper well and it's also just not just retards i mean your, your point is taken that there is a lot of stupidity out there but if you're stupid to begin with you don't need sophisticated propaganda right and then also in terms of the workflow of the economy a lot of this stuff can be done uh, cheaper by computers. I mean, you look at uh, what the middle oh, office well, does today, the tax preparers, you know, the lawyers even. This stuff can, and the, the LSATs were beat by ChatGPT uh, better than humans. And so that tells you that there's a huge swathe of the workforce that is, I think, under some threat. Uh, and it doesn't mean that they can't reskill themselves. But to answer your question, what does it mean? It means you can do this stuff cheaper. And anybody who controls this stuff is going to have, have leverage because they have a cost advantage. What that, that's the real reason. specifically can you do cheaper? Well, well like I just mentioned. What are you, what are you referring to? What you know, type of if, work? If you, well, I've, I don't know if you've used this stuff, but it's a lot faster than Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can get you, you can write software with, with this stuff, which I think is is really not fully appreciated today. I mean, I think programmers appreciate it, but you can save so much time in your work by using these tools. And if you don't use it, you're, you're not going to be able to keep up. And so I think that just is a, is a great example of, of the power of this stuff. It, Hank, what do you think about it? I mean, you know, you, you have, you have some knowledge about this. Yeah, stuff, so. it's, it's extremely important. So you can like, Thinking of it as a chatbot massively undersells the capability here. I'm like scrolling through my uh, <laughs> my my list of uh, esto- esoteric uh, queries here. Um, so I have a very long running conversation with the algorithm here, where. I'm trying to get a mathematical description of where the excess return comes from in a volatility pump and at whose expense, which if that sounds esoteric, esoteric. yeah, I mean, that, that's like a, that's a fairly niche concept in uh, portfolio theory, where if you have two uncorrelated assets, mm-hmm. Uh, with a which both have a net uh, expected return of zero, as long as they are uncorrelated. How do you sell? How do you by, sell derivatives on it? <laughs> well, no, purely by reallocating your portfolio between two uncorrelated uh, instruments, 
you can achieve a positive expected value, which is like magic. And I did not really understand, okay, so where does that return come from? Like I understand mechanically how you can demonstrate that this is possible, but those excess funds just in an accounting sense, if there's a market that's generating these prices have to come from somewhere. And through the course of like a conversation with this chatbot, I came to understand the answer, which is that like you're essentially getting paid to drive those correlations uh, to one, essentially. Um, there are some nuances there, but like having a relatively complicated con conversation about a concept in like like finance uh portfolio theory is not like quote unquote just a chat bot no at that point you're you're using it for a qualitatively different purpose where evidently it has absorbed enough conceptual literature uh about that field that it is able to surface that in uh, novel and interesting ways. Now, that's still just a chatbot. And that's, uh, I mean, it is and it isn't. It's not some, like, you know, spitting back, like, you know, how, and how was your day type thing. It's actually doing some amount of simulated analysis. It gets very interesting when you start uh, having the possibility for these things to interact with business processes and structured data. So there's absolutely zero jobs that are going to exist in 20 years in what is now like level one support. That is all going away. That's tens of millions of people. Their job no longer exists uh, because their job is to follow a script and also recognize when they need to escalate from that script and throw an exception and get somebody up to the next level of support. You do this like four times and then you're talking with basically the guy who wrote whatever you're trying to deal with or like runs that product who like knows everything about how it does and doesn't and should and shouldn't work. And, you know, you can usually get an answer out of him. But all of those guys below him, their expertise is understanding human language, being able to map that to this customer service or support script that they have, and recognizing when the script is out of options and they need to escalate. That is completely achievable literally they're just fiddling with okay well how do you make sure that these scripts are being followed how do you do monitoring how do you make it really low latency so that uh, people have the impression that they're being understood in exactly real time and handles interruptions and things these are all just like solvable problems so if your uh if your job is in like low-level customer supports or like things of that nature god help you uh, you oh, gotta find a different career. I, i'd even extend it to higher education i mean frankly like interacting with chat gpt has 
brought me back to my university days going to office hours. And I find it much, much more efficient to get answers in a two-minute session with this computer than I do with talking to a professor who actually does research papers on the subject. And it's not just because it's just more practical. It's just the thing like doesn't get tired and it has the entire internet at its disposal. Uh, it's, it's unbelievably transformative. And this is just the beginning because the scale at which this stuff can be done, I think is being recognized as being applicable broadly. And there's a lot of investment dollars going into it in a lot of industries, you know, in, in robotics and, and self-automated driving, uh, it's just automation. Automated driving is I like, I, it's, it's astonishing how many, uh, ideas of what quote unquote should be the course of progress in AI got completely inverted uh, by this uh, kind of like it's significantly easier to launch a, uh, a reusable moon rocket than to get a fucking door seal to work. Uh, <laughs> like turns out it's a lot easier, almost trivial to uh, have a human personality chatbot uh, versus like, getting a car that can drive by itself in fog uh, or like, uh, you know, respond to a uh, impromptu uh, hobo, like directing traffic around a uh, OD victim. Uh, you know, these are, uh, these are things that we, we had never conceived of as we were hypothesizing our cyberpunk future. Uh, yet here we are. Uh, but yeah, it's Still considering uh, the cyberpunk future. What are the prospects then of uh, self-aware, self-aware intelligence? Just, yeah. um, like the Turing, the Turing test was. Well, just, I, it mean it would just mean something that would act on its, on an interest that was its own for itself, right? But I that mean, that's doesn't what it like you're you're like throwing out these, you know, for itself, which presupposes the idea of motivation. I mean, if you take the thing and you just run it in a self-consciousness, it'll, it'll keep doing stuff. Yeah. Like you can, you can have it simulate whatever quality you want. At one point I said that, uh, you know, one of the consequences of, things like chat GPT will be to actually devalue the notion of uh, mere uh, intelligence or like mere humanity because it's apparent that, yeah, you know, it, it's not all that valuable of a commodity in and of itself, uh, you know, which is a little bit dystopian. Uh, <clears throat> but I think kind of, inevitable uh when you have uh, these sorts of systems operating next to uh people in like putatively intellectual tasks uh i think that there will still be you know a bunch of things that people do because ultimately it's not like oh can you possibly invent an ai that can have its own priorities it's like yeah you could like, do you care what those are? Like, it's totally possible to just be like, this thing is basically as smart as I am, and I don't care what it wants. The AI is my slave. 
humans have held slaves for millions of years. We're pretty used to this dynamic. You're, you're going to slot into it just fine. So you're not going to have a problem like asking the computer to figure something out that you could not figure out because you want a thing done. Like Romans did that. All of their uh, all of their accountants and mathematicians and court philosophers were slaves. Uh, and it's like, yeah, I got the smartest Greek slave straight from Athens. Uh, here, let me show them off to uh, to my my homies at the uh, the villa. Like, it's a uh, okay. It's a well, wild, so unprecedented dynamic. The threat of AI doesn't involve man becoming a slave to the machine. What about access to the AI itself? Access yeah, to the I mean, uh, people. To like, the what will happen when people are going to describe the AI disasters of the future? Like the inevitable response will be, well, why the fuck did you hook it up to that and then blindly trust the output? You should not do that. Are you an idiot? Did you ask the AI if it was supposed to be uh, deployed this way even? Or did you just kind of hook it up and freeball it? So, I mean, I've known people that have been trapped in like horrific uh, DMV experiences, for instance, because the system was convinced that they... Uh, looked just like somebody else and just like would not issue them an ID on that basis. And of course, you know, DMV employee in state redacted uh, did not recognize that there was a procedure to bypass this. So, I mean, when you hook these things up into systems without a escalation path built into the system, and then you have the inevitable mistakes, bad things will happen. Or if you just decide that you're going to use these things for evil, like, yeah, you're you're going to have some bad things happen. Uh, when you start talking about autonomous drone targeting and what that looks like if you have an entire uh, war that's fought between autonomous drone killbots in front and behind whatever quote-unquote front line exists that looks really weird and like philip k dick uh so yeah it's it's gonna be pretty bizarre and weird uh but it's not it's not this hollywood oh my god the machines are taking over it's it's worse than that like they don't even necessarily have a notion of taking over you just flipped the switch on the, uh, you know, please uh, connect the uh, the main, uh, the positive and uh, negative voltage on this thing, and now you're just suffering the consequences. Yeah, I think it's just a tool. I think it's a tool, and people are, are people, and you're going to have to live with the consequences of their decisions. But will it run amok on its own, I think, is maybe what the, uh, the Terminator scenario implies uh that is that is best that we destroy these machines too many incentives to not do that yeah it'll probably be fine i mean if you're going to talk about you know how do you pull out of a demographic collapse uh with whatever selected for fertility population exists that also happens to be high IQ enough in order to run a society. I don't see how you pull out of that power glide without some 
effective, massive augmentation of human capability. And fortunately, uh, God loves us very much and uh, sent, uh, sent some little helpers along the way. I, I've got two questions for you, Hank, and I've wanted to talk then about they will this be topic. Killing machines, though. Well, yeah, people build killing machines all the time. Let, let me ask my, let me ask my, my questions, machine. if I may. Um, I wanted to ask you this a while now. Two things. One, what is the threat or opportunity from their perspective of the Chinese investing in artificial intelligence? And two, what what is the what what is the difficulty and challenge around getting the training data? There's been a lot of attempts at this thing called synthetic data, but ultimately your bot is only as smart as what you give it. And if you don't have access to the information, you can't train it. And that's one of the reasons well, why that people think China has an advantage because they have so many people. But what do you think about the data question, the Chinese potential advantage, et cetera? Yeah. So, I mean, I know certain things and I am not familiar with other areas. So like, don't take it as the gospel truth. The Chinese, I assume by virtue of industrial espionage and just having some number of competent researchers, they're on top of the state of the art. Uh, from the estimates of relatively of relative difficulty of spinning up a just like de novo AI lab, I would not guess that they are in some sense ahead of the uh, Americans. Uh, they obviously have access to a lot of text data. There are some interesting research questions about like how good is Chinese text uh, at building these things versus uh, Latin text? That's a digression, but I think that most, like you're not going to be able to take just straight up the things that exist now and build something really, really transformative, like two levels ahead uh, without massive architectural changes. The research direction on a lot of those is pretty straightforward, but it's not something that I see like Chinese labs doing a lot of. So it might be like a lot of other things where they have their own domestic priorities. They're happy to try to uh, duplicate Western approaches and refine them for a Chinese context until they feel like they want to start making uh, their own experiments. The other thing is that like these things are pretty ridiculously expensive to train and they require access to GPU resources that are actually limited on the mainland. They can't go to NVIDIA and buy like 10,000 H1000s anymore. Uh, you can barely do that as an American. So is that call. really a limiting factor? I mean, obviously it takes longer to train, yeah. but do they literally not have the throughput to do it? Or is it just a waiting game where they, they just, they yeah, queue, I mean, the, queue the jobs up and then they just like get it done with slower well, you're, processors? You're talking, about, you're talking about testing architectural differences. So yeah, you can feed more data through it and you can extrapolate and say that, well, if I had 10 times the data, then I would be this much better at this benchmark. But in, if you're talking about something like 
I'm going to give you an Excel spreadsheet and you're going to summarize it. Uh, that's like a capability that doesn't kind of sort of exist, but it kind of sort of doesn't right now. You probably need some architectural enhancement in order to do that really, really well. Hmm. So you're playing around with architectures and each one of those experiments is a multi-day training run on a GPU cluster. So you start to burn through GPU capacity really, really, really fast if you're actually doing basic research into these things. Hmm. And given uh, the various trade restrictions that they're under and the fact that like Silicon Valley is buying every piece of silicon that's coming out of Taiwan uh, as soon as it pops off the assembly line, yeah, I find it uh, totally possible to believe that they're having, they would have difficulties like overtaking the U.S. in the immediate future for research purposes. You also asked about, you know, the training data problem, and we know that there are uh, untapped reservoirs of training data that exist. There's also metadata uh, about sources of training data that is not currently being exploited to its fullest. So video is something that people have been working on for a long time. Like, how do you ingest uh, large quantities of video efficiently and get value out of it? Mm -hmm. uh, book data, it's kind of a uh, low-key... Uh, that that one seems solvable. That one doesn't seem yeah. too hard. Yeah, I mean, all of these things are, are like solvable, but there are questions of, well, this project is going to burn this many thousand hours and this much storage space and this much compute resources before you can tell if it has any promise. And this one has this other set of trade-offs. You're kind of trying to do everything all at once and you have competing priorities. So... Yeah, like there's there's plenty of headroom on the uh, the data side. There's probably um, architectural changes that you need uh, if you're going to do stuff like optimal planning on top of uh, the uh, the large language model capability. Okay, all right. Well, I'm sure we could go on about that. Um, but for the, those listeners who don't want to hear it, uh, there's tons of YouTube videos you can watch and stuff if you want to hear more. But I think those are the geopolitical interesting things. I think the, the trade restrictions placed on China, I think, is relevant to our audience. Uh, is there going to be an AI war? I mean, there's already sort of a cyber war breaking out. I don't know how much that's correlated with the AI capabilities. But I think in terms of the social media space, as Nick was sort of mentioning, I think that has been going on for a long time and it'll only continue. Uh, you know, Russia, I think was a red herring. I think, you know, everyone does it. And I don't think it's uh, just limited to that. I think that's just what the media wants you to think. But I think that's, uh, that's something that the domestic intelligence services do plenty of and the Chinese, of course, as well. Um, it's just another tool in the arsenal. All right. So the, the remaining topics just Again, in respect of everyone's time, uh, I'll leave it up to you guys if you want to talk about it. I know we uh, maybe had some election conversation fatigue. If there's any energy left, I'll put it on the table again. But I did want you guys to comment on a couple of pop culture things. Um, I'll put them on the table in no particular order. Uh, 
there were some uh, high-profile old people deaths. Uh, Kissinger, uh, Diane Feinstein, uh, Charlie Munger of uh, Warren Buffett Partnership fame. Uh, the decline oh, of the Jews? Sort of, uh, you don't Munger. say. Not Munger, um, but he, he. You could you could think of him as one spiritually. Uh, that that is sort of an ongoing trend of like these old people clinging to power and what does that mean how long is that going to last gets to your other question about the boomers dying off i don't even know if these guys were boomers i mean they're so old but um the other one was um the kind of woke pushback bud light target uh boycotts of call of duty disney getting sort of shellacked uh elon telling them to go f themselves um and then Taylor Swift, and I had to get a woman to explain to me why she matters, but I think for women in particular, they're, she got time person of the year. Not that, that Elon got that <laughs> the year before, but uh, it shows you how fickle the media is. But um, she she did rake in something like $4 billion in her tour. And from a financial standpoint, it's obviously uh, record beating. But in terms of cultural significance, I don't quite understand what's so important about Taylor Swift, but maybe you guys can explain. Uh and then nationally, national politics, I, I guess we'll mix them all. Um, the rise of the alternative candidates, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, RFK, uh, or something like that, Jr. Uh, Ron DeSantis sort of, uh, sort of deflated. Uh, Trump's out there. They're trying to indict him. Um, there have been some high-profile political prisoners, I think, being... Uh, respectively put in jail and then let out of jail. Uh, Ricky Vaughn got basically sentenced. Uh, he's going in. Uh, Martin Scarelli got out. Uh, there were a few others. Um, let's see. Well, uh, old political prisoners. Uh, Ted Kaczynski died. Uh, we've got targeting of some of the potential future political prisoners. Uh, Russell Brand got kind of uh, canceled. Uh, and then, uh, I'm sure there's some in there I'm missing. Um, Joe Biggs from January 6th, Alex Jones fame, and one of his other uh, cohorts, forget his name, Owen Schroyer, I think is his name. He went into jail. Uh, a lot of it is tied up in January 6th. Obviously, the Trump affiliations, that's been going on. Uh, and then we have kind of on the other side, uh, on the left, they've been uh, doing, doing their thing with, uh, the sort of laws being passed against, uh, you know, anti, anti LGBTQ stuff. And then there's the, on the other side the populist front, people getting tired of, uh, all these corporations pushing the woke agenda. So all that, all that pop culture, national political junk, anybody want to comment or take, take that somewhere? Well, I think it's a baby. good follow up to what you, Everything that Hank was saying, I mean, it, it seems irrelevant. All this is irrelevant because it could easily be simulated. Isn't that right? That's that's different nerds. The uh, the AI nerds are different than the simulation nerds. And the AI nerds are different than the AI risk nerds. You got to know your nerds. So 21st century skills kids. Uh, yeah, but the Swift, culture, it's a product of an algorithm, isn't it? All the, uh, all the, all the 30-year-old ladies are going to start having babies. But this is just an algorithm. I mean, all those things put in front of you, Taylor Swift or 
somebody going to jail. I mean, some of those people going to jail, I will say what happened. I, I will say what happened to Ricky Bond. Um, that's fucked up. And I know that there were some controversies with respect to how that all went down and what it is he was doing prior to getting in trouble with the feds and why some people might be mad at him. And I understand all that, but holy shit, like he posted on the internet and went to prison for it. So that's where you're at America. Definitely, definitely uh, a shot across the bow of those that would dare to question the authorities. So nobody wants to talk about Taylor. No, I'd like to hear. I, I couldn't hear what you were saying. So so maybe maybe you could repeat that, Hank. Uh, and, and Nick, if you'd uh, wait for him to comment, then maybe you can reply. So imagine, imagine the Taylor Swift gets knocked up by... Who is she dating? What is he? A quarterback? Some sort of by football machine. man. I have no Imagine idea. Taylor Swift knocked up by a machine. Yeah. Immediately. Is she, like the she's baby. got a Cylon baby. Is that what you're telling me, Nick? What? You need you need to imagine. You need yes. to visualize the baby boom. If we're going to avoid South Korea dystopia, you need the Taylor Swift-driven baby boom immediately to focus the psychic energy. You know, in honor of Henry Kissinger, I'm actually adopting his vocal mannerisms through uh, vocal viral infection. So I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be able to resonate these guys. Well, I think I think we're getting to a close. Um, any final words? I hate I hate uh, asking for predictions, but uh, a lot of people are sort of uh, throwing them out there at this time of year. Um, or just any words of encouragement for anybody, if you just want to go that route. Hey, well, how long does Zog have? How long does Zog need? <laughs> how long do we have and how long uh, is the difference? Yeah, well, somewhere in between us being exterminated and uh, everyone else dying too is, uh, I guess, the answer. But, I mean, you look at the numbers, the numbers aren't good. And, I don't know, where's our future in between all this? Volunteer for your local Republican Party the season for it yeah volunteer for your little (laughs) (laughs) what the uh, internet censored you what'd you say (laughs) oh I said volunteer for your local death squad oh yeah you would say something like that I disavow (laughs) well uh, Actually, if you if you if you sign the right contracts, there's no volunteering involved. Yeah, there's only obligatory so service. Hey, everybody's got to die at some point, you know. I, I, I was just... really thinking Henry Kissinger was going to disprove that. I was so excited to send him his birthday card. 
<laughs> and I was so looking forward to writing another one. Yeah, his 100th birthday card. Well, he already got yeah. your previous ones, Hank. I think he he knew. Yeah, didn't you? He knew you you fell for him. Didn't you guys mail him off? Um, Again, give your big predictions for the next year so that we can come back here a year from now and say that they were all wrong. What have you got? Give give, give us one. Give oh, the audience one. I, you're putting you me got? on the spot. I hadn't prepared for this, so I'll, I'll just speak honestly. Um, I, I, think, I think it'll... People have been sort of like calling or sort of like saying there might be like a reactivation of the uh, the sort of black wing uh, riot squads that we saw last uh, election cycle. I'm not so sure about that. I, I get the impression that Biden doesn't want a scandal, and I think he just kind of wants to uh, quietly be ignored, and they'll try to rig the elections. And I don't even know if they're going to debate. I mean, um, I, I don't know. I think I think the from the economic point of view, where I probably can have some more clear basis of making a statement about what the future holds. Uh, I, I just, I just look at what the fed says. I think they're going to try to keep the stock market afloat until the election happens and then things might get choppy again. But I think, I think they're going to try to keep things stable. I think that's my prediction. Trump will end up beating Kamala Harris in the 2024 election. Damn, that's bold. All right, fine, yeah. Um, what do you no, got, Dick? Then too. Uh, 2024, Israel will be destroyed, and we will have the liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. Where'd you even come from? How are we even talking? Gotta get out of here, I understand. And I'll kill anyone who gets in my way. You weren't dreaming, B. Those were memories. You two are connected in a way I can't make head or tail of. Who? Me and who, Vic? Silverhand. Johnny Silverhand. Real talk of the town back in my day. He died, like, forever ago. You need to say there's an actual terrorist in my head. Right now. He'd burn down half the city just to prove he was right. And we're in the other half, just for fun. What do you want from me? <laughs> Destroy Arasaka. I don't even know what that means. Do whatever it takes to stop him, defeat him, gut him. He already tried to take over your body. You know, just for a little while. Hear me, asshole? A bullet to the fucking brain! Get out! Just get the fuck out! How to get rid of it. You don't have much time left. 